0: Iowa and New Hampshire are gearing up for the first votes in the presidential nominating contest and some voters hope endorsements like New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu's backing of Nikki Haley will help reshape the Republican field.
1: I like Nikki Haley. I liked her
2: going in but Chris Sununu's endorsement kind of solidified my, my vote for her.
0: It's Wednesday, December 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Joliker, in for Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the U.S. Supreme Court says it'll review a lower court decision that would make the abortion pill mifepristone less accessible. And doctor and jazz pianist and now cancer patient, Dr. Stanley Sagoff, prepares to play a show in Cambridge that's now taken on more meaning.
3: I'm a cancer person now. So there's sadness, but it's not grounded in a deep place. And I vote for living, and I vote for living as vitally and authentically as I can manage. It's 401. The news is first.
4: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Out of the 138 remaining hostages held in Gaza, eight are American citizens or dual American Israeli citizens. President Biden met today with their families. NPR's Mara Lyson reports the administration has been trying for more than two months to get these hostages released.
5: One of those still being held is the 35-year-old son of Jonathan dechel It
6: was a terrific, terrific meeting and conversation. We all came away feeling that as uh, families of hostages, uh, of American-Israeli hostages, that we could have no better friend uh, in Washington or in the White House than President Biden himself and his administration.
5: The hostage families said that within days of the massacre on October 7th, they were contacted by U.S. government officials, including the president and the secretary of state. And these families say they believe the administration is committed to getting their loved ones home. But they wouldn't discuss any details of their meeting, including whether they were told about any progress in the hostage negotiations. Mara Lyason, NPR News, The White House.
4: Ahead of an expected House vote to formalize a presidential impeachment inquiry, President Biden's son, Hunter Biden, who figures prominently in the GOP's allegations against the president, appeared on Capitol Hill today. NPR's Eric McDaniel has the latest.
7: Hunter Biden was told to appear in front of House investigators to testify behind closed doors about various business ventures he undertook when and just after his father was vice president. When his request to testify publicly was refused, he held a surprise press conference instead.
1: Let me state as clearly as I can, my father was not financially involved in my business. It's true that
7: after months of digging, Republicans haven't surfaced any links between President Biden and his son's businesses. But in the shadow of former President Donald Trump's high-profile criminal jeopardy, they plan to keep looking. Eric McDaniel and Pierre News, The Capitol.
4: Federal Reserve policymakers have decided to keep the key interest rate unchanged. Officials also signal three-quarter percentage point reductions next year. Major market indices are ending the day up more than 1%. The market's been on a tear this year, but NPR's David Gore reports just seven companies have been driving most of those gains. Wall
8: Street has given these stocks a nickname from an old western starring Steve McQueen. The Magnificent Seven. a big fan of the film. Bank of America's Michael Hartnett came up with the moniker to describe a group of stocks that's up 70 percent this year. Apple and Alphabet, the parent company of Google, along with Amazon, Microsoft and Meta, plus Tesla and the microchip designer NVIDIA. The S&P 500 is up more than 21 percent year to date, but Hartnett says Wall Street is getting worried. Narrow, concentrated markets are always vulnerable. Hartnett says for this bull market to continue, the rally has to broaden to include more companies.
0: That's David Gura reporting. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Deaths from drug overdoses remain at record high numbers in Massachusetts, roughly a decade after the current opioid crisis began. Part of the problem is that other drugs can be laced with the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Deirdre Calvert at the State Department of Public Health says fentanyl is killing people who don't realize it might be in cocaine or a fake prescription pill.
9: We have a toxic drug supply that does not just affect people who have an an opioid use disorder.
0: The State Department of Public Health is, for the first time, endorsing overdose prevention centers as a necessary tool to curb overdose deaths. WBUR's Martha Biebinger has that part of the story.
10: The endorsement is in a study that says communities could open sites where drug use is monitored to avoid deaths if some state drug laws are changed. Federal drug laws would still prohibit illegal drug activity. But Public Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein says with overdoses at record highs, the state needs to try this
11: option. Overdose prevention centers would be an effective means at reducing overdoses and fatalities in the Commonwealth. There has never been an overdose death reported at a sanctioned overdose prevention center.
10: State leaders have not committed to revising the laws needed to open these centers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
0: Environmental and public health groups are calling on state lawmakers to pass legislation mandating Massachusetts commit to 100 percent clean energy. The bill would require the state move to fully green electric technology for power, heating, and transportation by 2045. The state has already committed to reaching net zero emissions by 2050. Earlier this month, the state issued an order compelling power companies to consider non-gas alternatives. The Geminid meteor shower will peak this evening. In southern New England, viewers could see upwards of 100 meteors per hour. Silas Laycock is an associate professor of physics at UMass Lowell. He says tonight makes for ideal viewing because the moon will not be visible.
12: Tonight, the conditions really couldn't be better. The moon is not going to be up in the sky tonight, and the weather looks excellent. So this is probably the best prospect for uh, seeing
11: a meteor shower this year that uh, we're likely to get.
0: Laycock says prime viewing will take place between 7 p.m. and 2 a.m. And stargazers should direct their gaze to the left of the constellation Orion's belt. Taking a look at the forecast, as we just heard, we'll have mostly clear skies overnight. Temperatures will dip to the mid-20s. Tomorrow looks sunny with highs in the mid-30s. Warmer for Friday, around 50 degrees with sunshine. Saturday is looking mostly sunny with a high near 50 again. Right now, it is 41 degrees in Boston. This is WBUR.
9: WBUR supporters include Neon with Ferrari, Michael Mann's film about Enzo Ferrari fighting to save his empire, his family, and win the biggest race of his career, with Adam Driver, Penelope Cruz, and Patrick Dempsey, opens in theaters Christmas Day. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers and
13: I'm Ari Shapiro. In a moment we'll hear about the political fight over the future of a key foreign surveillance program. First to the Supreme Court which entered the abortion debate again today. It agreed to review a lower court decision that would make the commonly used abortion pill mifepristone less accessible. A Supreme Court decision on this case, which would come next year, could not only affect the way the FDA does its job, but also have a major impact on the presidential election. NPR Politics correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben and Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin are here to explain what is at stake. Good to have you both with us. Hey, Ari. Hi. Danielle, let's start with you. Tell us about the case the Supreme Court's going to hear.
14: Sure. So this case is about the availability of mifepristone, which is one of two drugs used in medication abortions. In this case, an anti-abortion rights group called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine brought a suit against the FDA, in part arguing against regulations on mifepristone that have been loosened over time. They don't think it should have been loosened. Starting in 2016, there were a number of changes. For example, the FDA made prescriptions available via telemedicine and made it possible to send the pills to patients through the mail. Now, in this case the fifth circuit court of appeals said those regulations shouldn't have been loosened they agreed with the plaintiffs they said that the drug shouldn't be so widely available now had the supreme court not decided today to take this up that would mean those tighter curbs on the drug would stand but since they will take this up mifepristone will remain available for now in its current form But a Supreme Court ruling, when it comes, could mean tighter restrictions on the drug or it might not. It
15: totally depends.
13: Okay, so the drug is still available for now at least. But Sydney, what are the stakes here? What could change?
15: Yeah, I mean, mifepristone is, like Danielle said, used in medication abortions, and those now account for more than half of abortions in the United States. The drug was approved in 2000, and it was a big deal in the U.S. because it was the first time women here could end their pregnancies without needing to undergo a surgical procedure. But globally, it actually wasn't a groundbreaking approval. Mifepristone had been approved up to a dozen years in other countries by that point. So there was plenty of evidence. It was safe and effective. And of course, there's even more now that it's been approved approved in the US for 23 years overall mifepristone increases access to abortion care and can currently be used up to 10 weeks gestation rolling back that approval to these pre 2016 restrictions would limit that access the drug works by blocking a hormone needed for pregnancy to continue that's called progesterone and it's usually taken with a second drug misoprostol 24 hours later which causes the uterus to contract and then empty
13: but misoprostol's approval is not
15: on the chopping block right Right. That's right. This is just about mifepristone. There are misoprostol-only abortions, and those could continue even if the court tightens restrictions on mifepristone. But misoprostol-only abortions are considered less effective and more painful than abortions using both drugs together. And if this case is successful, abortion opponents could come up with a way to take action against misoprostol next.
13: This opinion could come two years after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Danielle, how much could this case further change the abortion landscape in the U.S.?
14: Very, very much in a really huge way. Like I said earlier, this ruling, depending on how the justices rule, it could mean that patients can get the drug less easily. Uh, For example, if justices decided to roll back regulations to that pre-2016 status, it could mean, for example, that pills aren't sent through the mail anywhere, even in states where abortion is legal right now. And this would also be a huge deal, particularly for patients in states where abortion is tightly restricted, because right now those patients can still get the pills through the mail. So one way to think about this very simply is this, is that the Dobbs ruling overturning Roe sent abortion back to the states. States could determine up to a point what their abortion laws look like. This case would in some ways affect abortion availability nationwide. Hmm. That is a really big deal. But there's one other thing to note here is that, yes, the justices could uh, could tighten the restrictions or not. But they could also simply say, according to legal scholars, that plaintiffs didn't have legal standing here, that this was not their case to bring. Now, in which case, the justices wouldn't rule on the legality of of the arguments that they're making. They would just say, regulations stay where they are right now. We're not really taking
15: this up.
13: Mm. Sydney, you cover the pharmaceuticals industry. What could this mean for drug companies?
15: So this would set a precedent for court interference in FDA expert decision making. For decades, the FDA has been the global leader in approving countless drugs based on rigorous safety and efficacy standards. And now a court, not the FDA's doctors and scientists, a court could undo that. Here's Professor Robin Feldman at the University of California Law in San Francisco.
16: If the decision is broad enough to leave room to challenge all of
15: those the agency could be under considerable assault in the years to come the fda doesn't want to be sued for one thing it's expensive so it could make the agency more cautious when it comes to drugs that are politically charged think drugs for HIV drugs for gender affirming care and companies might not want to invest in developing some drugs if even after meeting FDA standards and winning that approval the approval can just be undone or limited by the courts so it makes that business investment a lot more risky and the industry has argued that it will have a chilling effect on innovation
13: And then there's the politics. If the Supreme Court decides another landmark abortion case during a presidential election year, Danielle, what could that mean?
14: It could mean a lot. It depends, of course, on how they rule. But one thing we know from the 2022 midterms right after the Dobbs decision, and also that we know from this year's off-year elections, for example, in Virginia, is that abortion right now, at least, really gets Democrats and Democratic leaning voters really fired up. They are very upset about the overturning of Roe, of course. So were the Supreme Court to tighten those rules on Mifepristone, it would be a huge blow for pro-abortion rights groups. And Democrats would also definitely run on abortion rights. We already know this. For example, the Biden campaign put out a statement today. It says mega Republicans led by Donald Trump. Are marching this country toward a full-on national abortion ban and if the supreme court strips away access to safe and effective medication abortion next year it will be the latest step towards achieving that goal that is very strident language from the biden campaign you can bet this would become a an absolutely huge issue in the 2024 presidential election if the supreme court decided to restrict the pills which again we're gonna to have to see next year.
13: But we know, as of today, they are at least going to hear the case. Correct. Reporting there from NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben and Sydney Lupkin. Thank you both.
14: Thank you. You bet.
17: Congress is wrestling over what to do about a key tool for gathering foreign intelligence. The program is set to expire at the end of the year. National security officials are pushing hard for reauthorization, but lawmakers on both sides of the aisle want to make changes. The question is how far those changes should go. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports.
8: There is arguably no program that the U.S. government uses to gather foreign intelligence that stirs up as much controversy as what's known as Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Under this authority, the government can collect emails, text messages, and phone calls of foreigners overseas, even when they're talking to Americans. And it doesn't need an individual court order to do so. Administration officials say the program is irreplaceable. Here's Attorney General Merrick Garland speaking at a news conference last week.
18: If we don't have 702, we will not be able to protect the American people.
8: At that same news conference, FBI Director Christopher Wray called the program essential for protecting Americans from foreign terrorism, foreign cyber attacks and foreign spies.
19: The idea that we would let an indispensable tool like that lapse or, frankly, amend it in a way that gutted its effectiveness, in my view, would be a a grave mistake.
8: But just how to amend Section 702 without gutting its effectiveness is the thorny question now before Congress. Lawmakers have renewed the program twice before, the last time in 2018. Since then, new government reports have come out documenting FISA violations by the FBI including its Searching 702 databases for information about a sitting U.S. congressman, as well as a local political party. That has helped alter the political dynamics around the government's surveillance powers. Now, progressives who have long pushed for more civil liberties protections find themselves allies with far-right Republicans suspicious of the FBI. They have channeled their Pfizer reforms into a draft bill put forward by the House Judiciary Committee. It would implement sweeping changes, including, most notably, requiring a warrant to search the 702 database for a U.S. person's communications. Elizabeth Goytin of the Brennan Center for Justice calls it a strong reform bill. She says it would not place any restrictions on the government's ability to collect and review the communications of foreign targets.
12: But it would extend significant civil liberties protections to Americans and rein in warrantless access to Americans' communications under 702 and other surveillance tools.
8: The Biden administration and many national security officials say a warrant requirement is legally unnecessary and would cripple the FBI's ability to tackle fast-moving threats. The administration and a lot of centrist lawmakers on Capitol Hill support a competing bill put forward by the House Intelligence Committee, also known as HIPSI. It would implement some changes but leave the 702 authority largely intact, and it would not impose a warrant requirement. The Hipsy bill, I think, represents a pretty good balance between uh the desire to keep the statute in effect and yet at the same time recognize that some reforms need to be made in light of experience glenn gerstel served as the general counsel for the national security agency it doesn't include the warrant requirement um, but in other respects it represents i think a pretty balanced approach to recognizing we need to have a robust national security tool while at the same time making some important privacy protections. But opponents of the Intelligence Committee's bill say that it contains language that would expand the government's surveillance powers.
12: I mean this bill is really a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's masquerading as reform but it actually does far more to expand surveillance than rein it in.
8: If it sounds like a lot to iron out before the current law expires at the end of the year that's because it is. Leaders of the House and Senate have agreed instead to pass a short-term extension of the statute through mid-April. That is meant to give lawmakers more time to hammer out a final bill. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. Thank you
13: for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we visit Iowa and New Hampshire as they gear up for the first presidential nominating contests, just over a month away.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Fidelity Investments, reminding you it's never too early to start saving for your child's future. Learn more about a tax-advantaged 529 college savings account and how you can use the money to pay for qualified expenses at fidelity.com ufund. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC.
0: On Wall Street, the Dow jumped more than 500 points today to close above 37,000 for the first time ever. The S&P and Nasdaq gained 1.4%. In local business news, Boston-based Vertex Pharmaceuticals will pay between $50 and $150 million in a, quote, contingent upfront payment to Editas Medicine in Cambridge. The Boston Business Journal reports Editas holds the patent to the technology underpinning a newly approved sickle cell treatment developed by Vertex. It's the first ever gene editing drug to be approved in the U.S., and Editas spokesperson didn't elaborate on the terms of the payment. This is WBUR.
2: WBUR supporters include Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Burton's Grill & Bar, with modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free, and kids' menus available, too.
20: I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite
21: programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org.
0: It'll be mainly clear tonight. Lows will be in the mid-20s. Lots of sun tomorrow. Highs will be in the mid-30s. It's 41 degrees in Boston.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from The Nature Conservancy, partnering with communities across the globe to find solutions to the climate and biodiversity crises committed to building a future where people and nature can thrive. Nature.org solutions. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. More at alignprobiotics.com.
13: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
17: And I'm Juana Summers. Global climate negotiations ended in Dubai today with the first ever call to move away from fossil fuels. But developing countries say the final agreement doesn't go far enough. NPR climate reporter Julia Simon has been following these talks closely and she joins us now. Hi there. Hello. So Julia, tell us just how
23: significant is this agreement? Look, the single biggest cause of global warming is burning fossil fuels. The United Arab Emirates hosted these talks. It's one of the world's biggest producers of oil. You saw the oil influence at these talks. OPEC, the oil cartel, they were at this conference, encouraging countries not to target fossil fuels. Up until almost the end, it wasn't clear if the final text would mention fossil fuels at all. But what we have is an agreement where nearly 200 countries say it's time to transition away from fossil fuels. Sultan Ahmed Al Jaber, he was president of the talks, He called the agreement a historic achievement.
24: The world needed to find a new way. And by following our North Star, we have found that new path.
23: And one of the science on climate change, it's clear to limit the worst effects of global warming, runaway sea level rise, deadly wildfires, heat waves. The world needs to reduce its fossil fuel emissions dramatically and quickly.
17: Right. So, Julia, tell us, what has been the reaction from countries to this agreement?
23: Well, right before El Jaber hit the gavel, he said.
24: Hearing no objection, it is so decided.
23: (laughs) Let's listen to Anne Rasmussen from the island country of Samoa, who spoke shortly after.
25: We didn't want to interrupt the um, standing ovation when we came into the room, but we are a little confused about what happened. It seems that you just gaveled the decisions and the small island developing states were not in the room.
23: Small island developing states like Samoa are some of the most affected by climate change, which has caused rising sea levels. So Rasmussen expressed concern about the final agreement. We
25: must leave here with a set of decisions that meet the magnitude of the climate crisis and that meet what is needed to secure the future of the coming generations. Now,
17: julie i understand that there are other countries who are also disappointed about the lack of a plan for helping countries pay for the impacts of climate change
23: yeah money was one of the biggest stumbling blocks at these talks the majority of pollution that's heating the planet was caused by wealthy countries like the u.s developing countries like samoa they didn't pollute as much but they're facing the brunt of climate change things like sea level rise hurricanes There were commitments at these talks in the hundreds of millions of dollars to help countries suffering from climate change impacts. But experts say that's a drop in the bucket and that hundreds of billions annually, at least, is needed for climate impacts. And that's not even counting all the money needed for adapting to climate change. So many are concerned that the agreement is not enough money, not enough accountability.
17: Okay, this agreement calls for tripling renewable energy by 2030, also for speeding up certain technological solutions to climate change. How is that being received?
23: Yeah, there's this push to accelerate something called carbon capture and storage. It's tech that captures planet heating pollution, stores it underground. This tech is very expensive, uses a lot of energy, and many projects don't trap as much pollution as they aim to. So there are a lot of big ifs around some of the tech the agreement is promoting. Julianne, a few words, what comes next? Well, you have this agreement, it's not legally binding, so we'll see if governments and industry actually do start to move away from fossil fuels. Julia Simon with NPR's Climate Desk, thanks. Thank you.
13: A warning to listeners, this next story mentions sexual situations and allegations of assault. In Florida, a scandal is roiling the GOP. The head of the party is under investigation for rape. Meanwhile, his wife, a conservative activist, is being pushed to resign her school board post amid charges of hypocrisy. The episode raises serious questions about the couple's and the state party's future. Here to help us sort through it is NPR's Greg Allen. Greg, uh, tell us what the scandal is about and who's involved.
26: Well, Ari, this is about a Christian and Bridget Ziegler. They're rising stars in Florida's Republican Party. He's one of the most high-profile Republicans in the state as the party chairman. Bridget, though, in some ways is the bigger star. She's a co-founder of Moms for Liberty, although she left the group some time ago. That uh, is a conservative group that focuses on schools. It's been working to remove books and stop curricula that deal with LGBTQ rights, among other things. Well, police in Sarasota are investigating whether Christian Ziegler assaulted and raped a woman with whom both he and his wife had a previous sexual encounter. In interviews with officers, Bridget Ziegler admitted that she'd been involved in a threesome with her husband and this other woman about a year ago. Now people are saying that she's a hypocrite and are calling on her to resign her position on Sarasota County School Board.
13: But it's her husband who is under investigation for a possible crime. What
26: are the allegations? Well, in October, Christian set up what the police say was a sexual encounter with him, his wife, Bridget, and the unnamed woman. Later, Christian told the woman Bridget couldn't make it and it would be just him, the unnamed woman and then canceled texting to him. uh, Sorry, I was mostly in it for her. A police affidavit said Christian showed up outside her door and according to the woman came in and raped her. He says he didn't rape her. Ziegler recorded the encounter on his phone. The Florida Center for Government Accountability, which broke the story a few weeks ago, says police now are reviewing that video.
13: What are Florida Republicans like Governor Ron DeSantis, who's running for president, saying about this scandal?
26: Right. Well, there's been widespread calls for Christian Ziegler to step down as Republican Party chairman. Here's DeSantis recently.
19: I hope the charges aren't true. I've known him. I've known Bridget. They've been friends. But um, the
26: mission is more important. One Florida Republican who hasn't commented yet or called for Ziegler's resignation is former President Donald Trump.
13: Explain why Bridget Ziegler is under uh, calls to resign, even though she's not under investigation for for crimes.
26: Right. I mean, the only thing that she's been charged with is hypocrisy. Over the last few years, she's been a key supporter of Desantis's campaign against what he calls woke issues. She, was, she says she was instrumental in helping write the parental rights and education bill in Florida, the one that's also called Don't Say Gay. Last night in Sarasota, the school board, which is dominated by conservatives, held a vote. They say she's been a distraction, and they asked her to resign. She refused.
15: I am disappointed. As people may know, I serve on another public board, and— This issue did not come up and we were able to forge ahead with the business of the board.
26: That other board is one that oversees the special district that encompasses Walt Disney World. You'll recall that DeSantis took away control of the district from Disney in dispute with the company's CEO over that parental rights and education don't say gay law. Well, are they likely to keep their jobs? Well, uh, Bridget Ziegler has already lost uh, her job at the Leadership Institute. That's a conservative group in the D.C. area. Uh, The Sarasota County School Board vote last night wasn't binding, so she can remain in her position for now. Governor DeSantis, could remove her for incompetence or malfeasance if he felt that was the case. He's done that before, and a number of different uh, school board members have been removed from their positions. Uh, But it seems unlikely in this case. Bridget Ziegler is a staunch DeSantis ally. As for her husband, Christian, his position is more tenuous. The executive board of Florida's Republican Party is meeting on Sunday to discuss whether he should continue as party chair.
13: That's NPR's Greg Allen in Miami. Thank you. You're welcome.
0: is NPR News. And ahead in 20 minutes here on WBUR, a Boston-area jazz pianist who's a retired doctor reflects on life and music as he prepares for a big show after receiving a tough diagnosis. Tonight, temperatures will dip to the mid-20s under mostly clear skies. The next few days look sunny. We'll have highs in the mid-30s tomorrow near 50 degrees Friday and Saturday. This is 90.9 WBUR.
21: WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing it will take all of us to improve lives and strengthen communities, the Boston Foundation partners with leaders and changemakers to advance equity and power a better Boston. The Boston Foundation. Move Equity, Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. And Davis Mom. Their divorce attorneys are committed to protecting what's most important to you. Davismom.com. That's D A V I S M A L M.com. The mayor of
13: Denver promised to end homelessness in the city, and then record numbers of
19: migrants arrived. We know that there are not going to be enough hotel rooms for us to put everyone up indefinitely.
13: Denver's crisis on top of a crisis, tomorrow on Morning Edition from
19: NPR News.
23: Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR.
6: Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. President Biden met face-to-face for the first time today with families of Americans who were taken hostage more than two months ago during the brutal Hamas attacks on Israel. The administration says there are still eight Americans who remain unaccounted for after U.S. diplomatic efforts helped secure the release of more than 100 hostages, including four U.S. citizens. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre says... President Biden has repeatedly called on Israel to take greater measures to spare civilian lives, even as it blocked international calls for a ceasefire.
10: But as the president has said himself, we will not stop until we bring all Americans being held hostage home.
6: The fighting in Gaza between Israel and Hamas has only intensified, forcing 85 percent of Gaza's population to flee from their homes. A major Ukrainian telecom is working to fully restore services to millions of customers there after revealing a cyber attack had disrupted operations. There are still many questions about who's responsible, as NPR's Jenna McLaughlin reports.
10: A group of pro-Russian hackers are taking credit for disrupting cell phone service across Ukraine. They claim to have destroyed servers and backups at Kyivstar, the major mobile provider. Ukrainian government agencies said they are still investigating, but concluded the group has connections to Russian intelligence. The attack has been very disruptive for Ukrainians, despite the company's insistence that customers' data remain safe. In some places, missile alert systems were disrupted, as well as ATMs. Ukrainians are relying on Wi-Fi when cell service is unavailable. The unease caused by the disrupted connectivity grew after a night of Russian missile attacks on Kyiv, as dozens were injured by falling debris. John McLaughlin, NPR News.
6: Stocks finish broadly higher on Wall Street today. This is NPR. One of the best meteor showers of the year peaks this evening and tomorrow morning as NPR's Deba Motasham reports weather-permitting viewing conditions this year promised to be ideal.
27: It's called the Geminid meteor shower. With the moon only a sliver at 1% full, you just need clear skies, a blanket, and a little patience. Binoculars or a telescope won't be necessary. So what are the Geminids? They're the result of a debris left behind by an asteroid named 3200 Phaethon, whose large rock-sized pieces are what makes the meteor so bright and they appear to radiate from the constellation Gemini. For best viewing, you can head out as early as 9 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time if you're in the Northern Hemisphere, and the hourly number of meteors should increase after that time. Just be sure to find a suitable location, ideally somewhere with wide open skies and little light pollution. Deba Motasham, NPR News.
6: The Federal Reserve is keeping interest rates unchanged for a third time this year, marking the longest pause yet in the central bank cycle of rate hikes to bring down inflation to its 2% goal. Fed Chair Jerome Powell says the board remains highly attentive to inflation risks in the near term. The latest Consumer Price Index puts the annual inflation rate last month at 3.1% as employers hired fewer people and the cost of the gas pump fell significantly. This is NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm Lynn Joliker in Boston. The Boston City Council has signed off on an $82 million collective bargaining agreement with the city's largest police union. The funding measure passed unanimously. But WBUR's Simone Rios reports some councillors wanted to see more reforms in the contract.
24: One of the biggest changes in the contract is police details will now be available to law enforcement outside the department, like university police. Outgoing Councillor Kendra Lara said the change is a historic first for Boston, but urged strong oversight as it's implemented.
28: We need to make sure, either by way of ordinance or by way of holding this administration accountable, which has proven to be incredibly difficult when it comes to police and policing, that the jobs that we are creating are going to the people in the city of Boston.
24: The head of the police union said Boston officers are glad to see unfilled details go to other officers as well as to certain trained civilians. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios.
0: Two new shelters are opening for families on the state's emergency shelter wait list. United Way of Massachusetts Bay is funding the shelters in north-central Massachusetts. It's part of a $5 million program announced by the state last month. Sarah Bartley is vice president of Safe and Stable Housing at United Way. She says the demand for emergency shelter currently outweighs the supply. We're trying
25: to
12: come to the table with creative solutions to accommodate those families who are on our waiting list for shelter and don't have other options of a place to stay.
0: Bartley says the two new sites will provide shelter to 23 families. There are currently a record 242 families on the state's shelter wait list. The state is reporting drought conditions in the islands region of Massachusetts. State environmental officials say Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket are currently in a significant drought. That follows two months of below normal rainfall and low levels
21: of groundwater on the islands. It's 436. WBUR supporters include Cityside Subaru on Route 60 in Belmont, celebrating this season of giving with Subaru's Share the Love event, now through January 2nd, and the Harvard Art Museums, with over 50 galleries of art spanning the centuries. Free admission every day, open Tuesday through Sunday, harvardartmuseums.org. In sports, the Bruins
0: are on the road to face the New Jersey Devils tonight. The puck drops at 7.30. Looks like the weather will cooperate for viewing the Geminid meteor shower tonight. Skies will be mainly clear. Temperatures will dip to the mid-20s. Tomorrow, we'll have bright sunny skies, highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Organic Valley, a farmer-owned cooperative dedicated to providing ethically sourced food from small organic family farms across the country. Learn more at ov.coop slash ethically sourced. And from the Kauffman Foundation, providing access to opportunities that help people achieve financial stability, upward mobility, and economic prosperity, regardless of race, gender, or geography. Kauffman.org. This is NPR.
13: This is All Things Considered from NPR News, I'm Ari Shapiro
22: and
17: I'm Juana Summers. In about a month, the presidential nominating season kicks off with voters deciding who they want as their next president. On January 15th, Iowa holds its caucus and then the following week, New Hampshire holds the nation's first primary on the 23rd. Though with President Biden running as an incumbent, the action in both states is largely on the Republican side. Here to discuss where things stand in the weeks leading up to these political showdowns, we have Josh Rogers from New Hampshire Public Radio hey Josh good afternoon and Clay Masters is also with us from Iowa Public Radio hi Clay hey there all right Clay let's start off with you I mean Iowa and New Hampshire have been at the front of the pack when it comes to presidential nominating contests for a long time but this year things are different the Democratic Party decided to shake things up so tell us how is that affecting the political tradition known as the Iowa
11: caucus Yeah, the DNC kicked Iowa out of the early window. You might remember the delayed results on caucus night 2020 was a disaster that wound up amplifying the critics uh, that have about this state that, you know, the caucuses are arcane and confusing. But Democrats here are still holding a caucus on January 15th, but participants are mailing in their picks for president, and that will be announced Super Tuesday, March 5th. So they'll still follow a state law that says Iowa must have the first in the nation caucus. I mean, and it wouldn't have been much of a contest anyway with an incumbent running in President Biden. But on the Republican side, I've been saying it all year, it continues to be Trump's to lose. I'll be paying close attention to turnout on caucus night. And if it's low, I'm kind of wondering what implications that could have on Republicans here making the case to. Stay first going forward as well. Mm.
17: Over to you in New Hampshire. Josh, how did New Hampshire defend its decision to hold on to its first in the nation primary status?
29: Uh, Basically, by citing tradition and also the New Hampshire law. New Hampshire also has a law, uh, state law, mandating that it be the first primary. Uh, This year, the DNC and President Biden chose South Carolina to lead off the nominating calendar on February 3rd. Uh, South Carolina. It's the first day Biden won four years ago, and the Democratic electorate there is largely black, which party leaders say better reflects the country than New Hampshire does, which is 90 percent white. So Biden won't be on the New Hampshire ballot, though there is a write-in effort afoot. Uh, The Republican primary is way more active. Uh, No calendar controversy there and uh, lots of interest from voters, including independents, who in New Hampshire can pick the primary ballot of their choosing.
17: Right. Clay, let's turn back to you. In Iowa, what's the mood like for Republicans?
11: Well, it's the Trump show, and Ron DeSantis and Nikki Haley are kind of like the opening acts, right? Some Iowa caucus goers are showing up to see them, but the star power is behind the guy who is already president and still has control of the Republican Party. Trump is way ahead of DeSantis and Haley in every poll. I mean, if there's a checklist in how to win the Iowa caucuses, DeSantis has kind of checked every box. He has the endorsement of Governor Kim Reynolds. Uh, he's been to all of Iowa's 99 counties, but I haven't seen his crowds, or Nikki Haley's for that matter, really grow in the way that politicians who have won past caucuses have. So while people are still showing up for the opening acts, Trump is still packing them in. I was at a bar a couple of weeks ago where people waited hours to see him. And his campaign, I mean, it is working harder to get get people to show up on caucus night. Remember, that's at a set time, 7 p.m. on January 15th. They're hoping to turn that star power into something of, of momentum.
17: All right, Josh, what about you? What do things look like for Republicans in New Hampshire?
11: In some ways, it's similar to Iowa. Uh, Donald Trump
29: is up, but Nikki Haley has been gaining ground in New Hampshire for some time, really. Uh, last night, she was endorsed by New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. And to the extent that endorsements of uh, can be consequential in New Hampshire. He, you know, Sunoon is really it on the GOP side. He's never lost an election. He hasn't always been popular with hardcore party activists, but he's very, very popular with middle-of-the-road voters, and those are the sorts of voters any candidate looking to challenge Trump uh, will need here. Uh, people like Mike Kirby, who I spoke with last night, he's an independent who backed Trump four years ago, but now mostly wants to make sure Trump doesn't get back to the White House, and and he says for that, for him that means voting for Haley.
11: In New Hampshire, if you want to be part of it, you really have to
1: look at the Republicans. And I like Nikki Haley. I liked her going in,
2: but Chris Sununu's endorsement kind of solidified my vote for her.
29: Uh, and, you know, Nikki Haley's got to hope a lot of voters here uh, share that point of view. Um, you know, we're going to see.
17: All right, let's talk now about the issues. Josh, what issues are potential Republican voters telling you as you're talking to them that matter to them?
29: Well, the economy, really affordability of of pretty much everything is something people here often talk about. Uh, They also talk about the border and migrants, uh, education, the content and quality of public schools comes up frequently. Um, So, too, do uh, international issues, the wars between Russia and Ukraine, Israel and Hamas. I guess I'd say broadly, lots of Republican voters will tell you they see the world these days as out of control. Uh, But there are certainly differences uh, between voters who back Trump or who support, say, Vivek Ramaswamy. Uh, They often see the world very differently on foreign policy than the sorts you might find turning up at a Nikki Haley event or checking out former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie.
17: And Clay Masters, jump in here. How does that compare to what you are hearing from voters there in Iowa?
11: Yeah, I mean, I echo pretty much everything Josh just did. I'm also hearing more about foreign policy issues like Israel and Ukraine, more so than I have in any other caucus cycle. Remember, evangelical Christians take up an outsized portion of the Republican electorate here. So issues around uh, abortion and gender are front and center, too. I mean, gone are the days where you can go to Iowa and talk about Iowa issues. Politics has just become so national. And when it isn't about an issue, it's about the character of of Donald Trump, either anger from his supporters that he's still facing all these criminal indictments or those looking for an alternative, saying they just want to move on from Trump's divisiveness. Uh, We have a clip here of Barbara Johnson, a retired educator from Waukee, who I talked to at a Haley event this weekend. She was with her husband uh, and she does a pretty good job of summarizing what a lot of voters at these non-Trump events have been saying to me.
20: We want
4: the leaders of the other nations to know that we're not nothing to be messed with and we need to do something about the border because it's getting, it's been way out of hand. So we just want people to move forward in peace, love and respect each other for their differences.
11: And I get a lot of voters who say they like Trump or maybe they like what he did for the country, but they just want to move on. Uh, Trump might not be putting in as much of an effort in Iowa as some of his other competitors, but he is still coming to the state, like tonight, where he's holding one of these commit to caucus events in eastern Iowa.
29: And, And Trump is also coming to New Hampshire for a rally Saturday.
17: All right. Last thing, y'all, we've all been covering politics for a long time. So I want to ask both of you, is there anything that you have seen this campaign season that looks different from other presidential cycles you've covered in the past?
29: Well, you know, we have a frontrunner uh, acting like an incumbent uh, and everyone else really desperately trying to gain traction, working the traditional New Hampshire angles and and hoping those still might apply when there's evidence they may not.
11: Yeah, I mean, we've always heard these myth-like stories about how Iowa and New Hampshire voters take this process seriously and, you know, put the candidates through their paces. But we've seen a lot of evidence throughout 2023 that that's not really happening. And just to add to that, a reminder, this dominant candidate, Donald Trump, is facing many criminal charges, so still very unprecedented.
17: That's Clay Masters with Iowa Public Radio and Josh Rogers with New Hampshire Public Radio. Thanks to both of you.
29: Thank you. Thank you.
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. In 1944, the city of Durham, North Carolina, was riveted by the killing of a young black soldier and the trial of the white bus driver accused of shooting him. Now a group of activists has revived that soldier's story, and the state has unveiled a historical marker on the place he was shot. WUNC's Jay
18: Price reports. Private Booker T. Spicely was a 34-year-old cook from Philadelphia. He was stationed at Camp Butner, not far from Durham. It was a July Saturday, and he had come into the city on a weekend pass to spend time in Hayti, the thriving community that had become known as the Black Wall Street. But when some white soldiers boarded a city bus he was riding, Spicely fell afoul of one of the most notorious of the Jim Crow laws enforcing racial segregation in the South.
8: He was asked to move toward the back of the bus, and he complied, but he had something to say about it.
18: As part of the reemergence of Spicely's story, scholar and performer Sonny Kelly has created a one-man show about the contributions of black veterans to the nation's history.
8: When he got off that bus, that bus driver was so indignant, he followed him off and shot him point-blank in the chest.
18: Spicely hadn't even broken the law, just complained. It took 28 minutes for the all-white jury to acquit the driver. Retired public defender James Williams leads the committee that's reviving Spicely's story.
19: One reason that it was important was in seeking some semblance of retrospective justice for Booker Spicely and his family, because I think it was time for us as a community to begin to
18: carry that ball, to carry that weight. He notes that Spicely's story touches so many important parts of history, like how Jim Crow laws worked and how black troops were fighting for victory against fascism overseas and racism at home in what the influential black newspapers of the day called the Double V
19: campaign. While Herman Council, the white bus driver, pulled the trigger, it was Jim Crow and white supremacy that loaded that gun.
18: Now, thanks to the committee Williams leads, Spicely's story, with all its lessons, will be told more widely. One of its first acts was to apply for the state marker. Williams also approached Duke Energy, the Charlotte-based power company, for funding to help tell Spicely's story. A forerunner of the company operated Durham's city buses for decades, including the one Spicely rode in. None of us had heard the story before. Indira Everett is a spokesperson for the company.
16: And our Duke Energy team decided it was important to make sure the private Spicely legacy continued to live on.
18: Her company endowed a scholarship fund in Spicely's name at the law school of NC Central, a historically black university. Meanwhile, UNC Chapel Hill developed a lesson plan for elementary school teachers based on Spicely's case and worked with Kelly to develop his show. Sonny Kelly wants to do more with Spicely's story so many dynamics that vectored into his demise that it's not just as simple as racism and death
8: it's a lot of things right he's from the north he's a soldier what does it mean to be a soldier in world war ii for him and for his family at that time
18: the historical marker for spicely is a few hundred feet from the north carolina school of science and math students participated in the dedication back in 1944 the school was a hospital for whites. As he was dying, police took Spicely there, but under Jim Crow, he was refused treatment. One more lesson his death offers. For NPR News, I'm Jay Price in Durham, North Carolina.
17: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And thanks for being with us this afternoon here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, our conversation with Dr. Stanley Sagoff, a retired Boston-area physician, professor, and jazz pianist who's preparing for a performance in Cambridge that's taken on new meaning as he confronts a tough diagnosis himself. And then after the top of the next hour, the Fed holds interest rates steady amid signs of cooling inflation.
9: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Johnson & Wales. Think you know Jwu From engineering to graphic design, let Johnson & Wales surprise you. More at jwu.edu. And Office of the Massachusetts State Treasurer. Check to see if you have unclaimed property at findmassmoney.gov.
0: We'll have mostly clear skies overnight. Temperatures will dip to the mid-20s. Tomorrow looks sunny with highs in the mid-30s, then warmer for Friday around 50 degrees with sunshine. Saturday is looking mostly sunny with a high near 50 again. More clouds will roll in for Sunday with temperatures in the upper 40s. This is WBUR. We are funded by
9: you, our listeners, and by Harvard Square Holiday Fair, One Brattle Square, local crafts for gift giving, December 15th to 17th and 21st to 23rd, harvardsquareholidayfair.com. And Semester Off, an education and wellness program in Wellesley helping college students and high school grads get back on track. Spring semester starts January 22nd, semesteroff.com. And the Music Emporium, purveyors of vintage and new acoustic and electric guitars for over 50 years. Every instrument has a story. You can discover yours at themusicemporium.com.
0: As you support organizations that have real meaning in your life and throughout your community, please make a
4: tax-deductible year-end contribution to WBUR. I'm Tiziana Deering.
0: Your gift of cash or stock or a contribution from your donor-advised fund helps become something a lot bigger. Your gift will enrich communities across Boston and throughout our region. Simply put, it will help us all. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
16: This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. This Saturday night, Stanley Sagoff will be doing one of his favorite things, playing keyboard at the Regatta Bar in Cambridge with his longtime bandmates making music like this. Sagoff's been preparing for this performance from his home in Chestnut Hill. It's cozy in here. He's got keyboards, a computer, speakers, and CDs, including his own. There are beaded South African
3: necklaces on the wall.
16: This could only be the home of a jazz player.
3: (laughs) We have a small, waning, but still important influence.
16: (laughs) He hasn't performed in public since the pandemic began, but he has been making music. He gets up by 5.30 in the morning and hunkers down in his studio. He composes a new song every
3: day. I just completely trust myself. I'm going to put my fingers on the keys, and whatever starts it is going to be where it starts. So, what I recorded this morning, I presented on SoundCloud, and it sounded like this.
16: Sagoff approaches his music with the creative intensity he seems to bring to everything in life, especially now. His life has changed in the past couple of years, even in the past couple of months. Sagoff recently retired after he spent more than five decades as a primary care physician. He treated generations of families around Boston, and he still teaches at Harvard, BU, and Tufts Medical Schools. He pursued medicine after he spent his childhood receiving medical care. Sagoff was born in South Africa with a genetic deficiency that caused him to have club feet and other deformities. He had 16 surgeries by the time he was 13 years old. And now he's a patient again. He got a jarring diagnosis this fall.
3: It's stage 4 metastatic melanoma in both lungs. Ten years ago, it was kiss him nicely goodbye diagnosis. It's not for some people now. It is still for most. I have some advantages, which I just more detail than I think I want to focus on now, but enough of them to make me optimistic that I can be monitored at present without treatment. That is pretty unusual.
16: So would Dr. Sagoff in his office tell Stanley Sagoff as patient to
3: hold off on treatment? Yeah, here's why. I'm healthy. I exercise every day. I cycle 10, 20 miles. I've got a loving, supportive family. I could complain. I could complain. (laughs) You know, and I do. I get miserable. I get terrified the horror of something growing in me that's not part of me, that biology is not mine and doesn't depend on me. But waking up, not waking up, I'd rather have this and talk about this and tell people it's not that bad. I mean, I have an illness, but I'm not at all sick. Take your best shot. Come to the regatta bar, second show. (laughs) (laughs) I really want the evening to be about deep feeling. But the feeling is not grim.
16: Is it going to affect your music?
3: Yeah. Um, I have no bucket list. If I were to have died and not known I had this, I would have missed this conversation, Lisa. I like living. I don't crave living. I've lived plenty. I'm going to be 80. We are impermanent. We have a... in time. It's just my time, Elisa. That's why, in a way, if I did die tomorrow, that would be okay. But the finitude itself, just like a musical sound, you play it and then it stops.
16: Sagoff picks up a brass bowl and hits it with a little mallet.
3: Still hear it. Still hear it. Okay. Um, a life, it seems to me, is, is captured in some way in, in sound expression. So what
16: do you want to get out of um,
3: by the end of your two performances at the regatta bar? Um, let me say one brief thing about that. Why do I do music at all? I think it paints a picture of a world in which people listen respectfully and with joy and support to other people. And I think that's what makes people love it and respond to it. I think it's what music represents to me and to my players for sure. We are playing because we love to play with each other. And I trust these people. I'm very emotionally easily triggered at the moment because of a lot of things not the least of which I haven't played in public for three years for people. I'm a cancer person now, and that's lonely. So there's sadness, but it's not grounded in a deep place. And I vote for living, and I vote for living as vitally and authentically as I can manage. And you help by interviewing me and ask me to tell you the story.
16: We asked Sagoff to play a song for us before we left. He chose Wayne Shorter's song, Footprints. Stanley Sagoff will perform two shows with his quintet at the Regatta Bar this Saturday. He'll be surrounded by friends and family who are flying in to celebrate Sagoff, his music, and his
2: life. WBUR supporters include Lauren Hollerin with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, real estate brokerage that is grounded in data and committed to thoughtful design. LaurenHollerin.com.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From the Public Welfare Foundation, committed to advancing a transformative approach to justice that is community-led, restorative, and racially just. Learn more at publicwelfare.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station.
21: I'm here now host Robin Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The House is
0: set to vote to formalize the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. GOP lawmakers say they're investigating Biden for corruption, but they haven't produced any evidence.
13: It's like an Agatha Christie novel where the mystery is, what's the crime? And that gets very tedious, very fast. It's Wednesday,
0: December 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lynn Joliker, in for Lisa Mullins. We'll also hear from the family of an Israeli-American who's being held hostage by Hamas. The family met with President Biden today. And testimony in former President Trump's civil fraud trial wraps up. Closing arguments will be next month. Plus, 10 years ago, Beyoncé took a risky step, releasing her latest solo album at midnight with no promotion. We'll take a look back. It's 5.01, news headlines are first.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Annual COP28 climate negotiations have wrapped up. NPR's Rebecca Hersher reports the talk's ended with a modest deal to transition away from fossil fuels.
20: The deal does not require countries to phase
0: out fossil fuels or provide any timeline to hold leaders accountable for transitioning away from oil, gas and coal. U.S. Special Climate Envoy John Kerry nonetheless touted the deal, noting it's the first time the term fossil fuels has been mentioned in such an agreement, and he believes the switch to renewable energy sources is inevitable.
3: I am not convinced yet that we will do so at the pace the scientists are telling us so that we avoid the worst consequences of the crisis. That's our challenge. Speed it up.
0: Right now, humanity is on track to blow past temperature limits set by the Paris Climate Agreement, a path that will have serious consequences for the planet.
28: Rebecca Hersher,
1: NPR News. A new NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll finds a hypothetical presidential contest between President Biden and former President Trump would at this point be extremely close. Bureau's Montanaro Montanaro reports why that's not unexpected.
7: The country sharply divided along party lines on all kinds of issues, and the NPR poll makes that clear for Biden and Trump. Asked who they would vote for if the 2024 presidential election took place today, survey respondents split down the middle. Biden gets 49 percent, Trump 48, a statistical tie when the margin of error is almost four percentage points. Trump and Biden are almost equally disliked as well, with 53 percent saying they have an unfavorable opinion of Biden, but 56 percent saying they have a negative view of Trump. Trump. The poll runs counter to the idea that Trump has gained the upper hand in the presidential election. If anything, the survey shows how much can change and how close a rematch between the two would likely be. Domenico Montanaro, NPR News,
1: Washington. Tesla's updating software in more than two million vehicles to make it harder to abuse the vehicle's auto steer feature. Change will be delivered to cars wirelessly and comes after pressure from federal regulators, as NPR's Camilla Dominovsky reports.
14: This recall affects Tesla's standard autopilot software, not the controversial full self-driving program. It's more like a really smart cruise control meant for highways only. Federal regulators wanted more safeguards to make sure drivers pay attention to the road while they use auto steer. This is part of an ongoing conversation between the government and Tesla. After previous scrutiny from regulators, Tesla added cameras to
15: monitor where drivers are looking while using auto steer. Now, cars will also issue more warnings to inattentive drivers and turn off the feature for drivers who repeatedly
14: abuse it. Camila Domenoski, NPR News. The
1: Federal Reserve has wrapped up its last meeting of the year, leaving short-term interest rate targets unchanged. That played well on Wall Street. The Dow shot up 512 points, a gain of 1.4 percent. The Nasdaq rose 200 points. This is NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lynn Joliker in Boston. A retired Boston fertility doctor is accused of using his own sperm to impregnate a woman during an artificial insemination procedure more than four decades ago. Dr. Merle Berger, a founder of Boston IVF, is named in a lawsuit filed in Boston federal court today. WBUR's Deborah Becker reports.
9: The lawsuit alleges that Dr. Berger inserted his own sperm into a patient who was told that she would receive sperm from an anonymous donor during a procedure in 1980. Sarah Depoyan of Maine filed the suit after her now 42-year-old daughter took a home DNA test and came to suspect that Berger was her biological father.
20: We never
4: dreamt we would have, he would abuse his position of trust and perpetrate this extreme violation. I am struggling to process it.
9: In a statement, Berger's attorney Ian Pinta said the allegations in the suit have changed repeatedly and will be disproven in court. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm
0: Deborah Becker. The state treasurer is asking a judge to allow her to move forward with a suspension hearing for Cannabis Control Commission Chair Shannon O'Brien. Treasurer Deborah Goldberg suspended O'Brien in September, alleging she made racially and culturally insensitive comments at work. The two were originally supposed to meet behind closed doors last week, but a Superior Court judge delayed the hearing at O'Brien's request. Goldberg is now asking the court to lift that hold so the suspension proceedings can resume. The judge will consider that motion tomorrow. Boston Congresswoman Ayanna Pressley is marking the 100th anniversary of the introduction of the Equal Rights Amendment. She's also urging her colleagues in Congress to publish the ERA and the Constitution. It would guarantee equal legal rights for all Americans, regardless of sex. Pressley held a march in Washington, D.C. earlier today.
20: How long have we been waiting? Too long. A hundred years too long of unaddressed sexual violence. A hundred years too long of fighting the war against our bodies. A hundred years too long of being relegated to a footnote in history. Enough is enough.
0: Enough states have now ratified the ERA for it to become an amendment, but not until after an arbitrary deadline had passed. Presley is calling on Congress to remove that time limit. Central Synagogue Boston is hosting the annual menorah lighting at the State House this hour. The event includes performances and holiday treats. Tonight is the seventh night of Hanukkah. Well, it looks like a pretty nice stretch of weather coming up. It'll be mainly clear tonight. Lows will be in the mid-20s. We'll have lots of sun tomorrow. Highs will be in the mid-30s. Friday looks sunny again and warmer near 50 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation recognizing exceptionally creative individuals. This year's MacArthur Fellows and more information are at MacFound.org.
13: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro.
17: And I'm Juana Summers. In just a few moments, we'll look back at the life and career of the late actor Andre Brower, But first, the House of Representatives is expected to approve a resolution formalizing its impeachment probe of President Biden. This comes on the same day that the president's son, Hunter Biden, appeared at the Capitol for an interview with GOP investigators, saying he wanted to testify in public. I'm here. I'm ready. NPR congressional correspondent Deirdre Walsh is at the Capitol. Hi there. Hey, Juana. So, Deirdre, why now? Why the move now to approve an impeachment inquiry?
30: It's really a political and a legal move by House Republicans. The speaker was facing a lot of pressure from far-right lawmakers to act on impeachment, and former President Trump has been pushing House Republicans to impeach Biden. Three House committees began investigating the the uh, president and his family back in September. But leaders skipped holding this official vote because of splits inside their party about whether or not they should move forward on impeachment. Now, House Speaker Mike Johnson says because these committees aren't getting the information they asked for, this step formalizing that probe will help their legal position. The White House said in a letter recently the investigation wasn't official because the House never voted on it. Okay, and help us understand what
17: exactly do House Republicans allege is the wrongdoing by President Biden?
30: These three committee chairs are alleging corruption and abuse of power by the president. Oversight Chairman Jim Comer points to money that Hunter Biden made working for foreign business interests, but they have no evidence showing that Joe Biden received any financial benefit from any of his son's business dealings. In terms of this inquiry resolution today, South Carolina Republican Ralph Norman argues it's the same process that Democrats used for Trump's impeachment. If Democrats thought this process was fair, for President Trump, they should think it's fair for President Biden. But Democrats say that's what this is really all about, not a process to investigate Biden, but payback for Trump's impeachments. And they say Hunter Biden, who does face some serious legal issues for criminal charges on tax evasion, is not an elected official, but he's a private citizen. Okay, let's talk more about Hunter Biden. What did he have to say today? And why did he oppose doing an interview with the House committees? Right. I he argued that because Republicans have distorted information about him in the past, he didn't want a closed door interview and instead wanted to appear, appear in public. He also pushed back at the Republican claims that his father profited from his business dealings.
1: My father was not financially involved in my business, not as a practicing lawyer, not as a board member of Burisma, not in my partnership with a Chinese private businessman not in my investments at home nor abroad and certainly not as an artist.
30: Republicans leading the investigation say the way you do invest these kinds of investigations is to hold closed door interviews first and then have a public hearing. And they said they eventually wanted one with Hunter Biden. They say the next step is uh, possibly to hold Hunter Biden in contempt because he defied a congressional subpoena by not agreeing to this deposition today.
17: Okay. And Deirdre, this has all been about formalizing an investigation that has been going on for months now. So, how soon could we see Republicans introduce
30: actual articles of impeachment? It could be early next year, which coincides with the presidential election and with the trials facing former President Trump. But Republican leaders are going to face another split inside their conference about possibly moving forward with any charges. As we've said before, they don't have any clear evidence of any high crimes or misdemeanors by President Biden. And some of the moderate Republicans who back this inquiry are saying that's fine, but they are not ready to vote to impeach the president yet.
17: That's NPR's Deirdre Walsh. Deirdre, thank you. Thanks, Wada.
13: Today could mark a milestone in monetary policy. The Federal Reserve signaled that it is probably done raising interest rates, and Fed policymakers say they could start cutting rates sometime next year. That would be welcome news for many people. Higher interest rates make it more expensive to borrow money for a car or a business or to carry a balance on your credit card. The Fed's comments come amid signs of cooling inflation. NPR's Scott Horsley is here with details.
6: Hey, Scott. Hi, all right.
13: The Fed voted today to hold interest rates steady, but suggested they may not stay there. Sounds like no news is news in this case. What's the message?
19: Yeah, the Fed is sounding cautiously optimistic. You know, inflation has come down uh, a lot. Uh, This week we learned that consumer prices in November were up just over 3% from a year ago. That's less than half the inflation rate we saw at the beginning of this year. It is still above the Fed's target of 2%. So Fed Chairman Jerome Powell says he and his colleagues would like to see uh, more progress. But right now, they don't anticipate any more rate increases, although, Powell cautioned, they're not ruling that out altogether. We still have a ways to go. No one is declaring victory. That would be premature. And we can't be guaranteed of this progress. So we're, we're moving carefully in making that assessment of whether we need to do more or not. Up until today, Powell had said he and his colleagues weren't even talking about cutting interest rates. Well, now they clearly are talking about cutting interest rates. In fact, the informal forecast that policymakers put out this afternoon show that, on average, they expect to cut rates by three-quarters of a percentage point next year and by another full point in 2025. That would be a big turnaround, although rates would still end up well above the near-zero mark where we started this process.
13: The experts on Wall Street seem to like that. The Dow Jones Industrial Average hit a record high today, but ordinary people are still feeling pretty unhappy about the economy. So what does that tell us?
19: Wall Street was definitely happy with the Fed's message today. Uh, Lower interest rates generally mean higher stock prices, and the Dow soared more than 500 points. But Powell was asked about public opinion polls that show even with solid GDP growth and very low unemployment, many people are grumpy about the economy. The Fed chairman suggested one explanation is that a lot of stuff still costs more than people would like. While inflation is coming down, and that's very good news, the price level is not coming down. Prices of some goods and services are coming down. But overall, people are still living with high prices. And that is something that people don't like. Now, the good news, Powell says, is that thanks to the strong job market, wages have been rising faster than prices. In fact, wage growth has outpaced inflation for the last seven months. If that positive trend continues and people see their paychecks catching up and stretching further, then perhaps their mood will improve. And
13: timing here matters politically because 2024 is an election year. So when might we start to see rates begin to come down?
19: That is hard to say. The forecast the Fed offered today doesn't give any guidance about precise timing, and we know it takes time for rate cuts to make their way through to the real economy. Of course, people's political views tend to harden well before the November election. The Fed is supposed to be politically independent, and Powell has guarded that independence very carefully. We don't think about political events. We don't think about politics. We think about what's the right thing to do for the economy. The minute we start thinking about those things, you know, we just can't do that. We have to think, what's the right thing? We'll, We'll do the things that we think are right for the economy at the time we, when we think is the right time. This is politically sensitive, though. When Donald Trump was in the White House, he often jawboned the Fed to lower interest rates and goose the economy. President Biden's more circumspect, but I suspect his campaign would prefer to see rate cuts sooner rather than later. The elder George Bush famously blamed the Federal Reserve for not lowering interest rates more aggressively. Bush thought that cost him his reelection in 1992.
13: NPR Scott Horsley, thank you. You're welcome.
17: Andre Brower has died after a short illness. He was 61 years old. The actor was best known for playing police officers on two long-running shows, Homicide, Life on the Street, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. NPR's Isabella
28: Gomez-Sarmiento has this appreciation. Andre Brower made a name for himself playing very serious characters, but he became well-loved in recent years for his comedic role on Brooklyn Nine-Nine. So, Brooklyn Nine-Nine is a police procedural spoof where Brower plays this captain, Raymond Holt, who's corralling a ragtag team of detectives. He's a straight-laced guy, they're a bunch of goofballs, you know the drill. In this scene, Holt finds the detective standing around trying to guess why a colleague, Goody Two-Shoes' Amy Santiago, is late for work, so he joins in.
6: i like to play. I'd say she's in line at the bank.
28: I'm just 70 seconds late. It's not a big deal. Don't worry about it.
6: Santiago, you
27: will tell us, and you will tell us now.
28: Brower's Brooklyn Nine-Nine co-star Joe Latrullio says this scene, this moment, is when he found his way as a comic actor,
24: because, it turns out... Holt guesses right.
28: There was a problem at the bank.
24: Hot damn! That was like the moment where you felt like Andre really loosened up and became very comfortable in, in his shoes as whole as
8: He had this authority and this presence that served every character that he played.
28: NPR TV critic, Eric Deggans.
8: And what was so interesting was
6: that he was able to make it work in drama and comedy.
28: Brower rose to fame on Homicide, playing Detective Frank Pembleton, a tough cop who solved murders.
6: This is my job. This is what the city of Baltimore pays me to do, to pin murder
28: one on a girl in this situation. He played that role for six seasons, which won him his first Emmy. He won a second one for the FX miniseries Thief in 2006. Back then, he told Fresh Years' David Bianculli how he chose his projects.
6: I like messy dramas. So when I I read the pilot, the question in my mind is, is there enough of a mess that needs to be cleaned up that will allow this show to live on?
28: Eric Deggans describes Brower as
6: a man who elevated the intelligence of his characters in a way that was singular and
24: really impressive.
28: But Joe Latrulio says that even though Brower's characters showcased his savvy, driven side, as a person, he led with his heart.
24: The gift that I got from Andre was how he prioritized the people that were important in his life, that he was deeply passionate about his work, and he was a very curious man. But my main takeaway was how much he, he loved his family. The actor
28: is survived by his wife and three children. Isabella Gomez-Sarmiento, and PR News.
13: To All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. You can also find us on the WBUR app. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, we'll hear from the family of an Israeli-American being held hostage by Hamas. The family met with President Biden today.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, committed to fighting hunger in the Northeast by donating food to local food banks and pantries. OceanStateJobLot.com. And the Christian Science Plaza. Start first night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com slash first night.
0: On Wall Street, the Dow jumped more than 500 points today, 1.4 percent, breaking a record to close above 37,000 for the first time. The S&P and Nasdaq also ticked up 1.4 percent. In local business news, the first fully electric trash collection trucks have hit the streets in Boston. New Hampshire-based Win Waste Innovations is piloting two electric trash trucks to test their operational capability. They'll be picking up waste from commercial customers in neighborhoods including the Seaport, Back Bay, Beacon Hill, and Chinatown. This is WBUR.
2: WBUR supporters include the Boston Foundation. Knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city, The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org.
27: I'm Mary Louise Kelly.
4: On All Things Considered, I try to drive hard questions. Your old car can drive
21: our whole program. Consider donating it, and thanks. Just go to wbur.org.
0: Skies will be mainly clear for the Geminid meteor shower tonight. Temperatures will dip to the mid-20s. Tomorrow we'll have bright, sunny skies. Highs will be in the mid-30s. It's 40 degrees in Boston.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, Supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org. And from the listeners who support this NPR station.
17: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana Summers. And I'm
13: Ari Shapiro. Many people desperately want genetically related children, but for millions, that's impossible. A new technology could help folks struggling with infertility, as well as gay and trans people trying to build families. NPR health correspondent Rob Stein has been exploring the issues that this new technology raises. And today, Rob brings us some of the people who would want to try it.
31: It's early on a Wednesday morning, and I'm meeting up with Diana Zucknick. She's on her way to an infertility clinic in downtown Austin for yet another appointment.
25: We'll take the elevator up. Where are we going? We're going to the fourth floor to Aspire Fertility Clinic.
31: Diana and her husband started trying to have kids even before they got married 12 years ago when they were in their 20s, got
27: you all in.
31: even built a big house right away for all the kids they wanted. But after about a year of trying, the couple discovered they were both infertile.
25: Um, we had sort of just imagined that it would happen naturally, and then to find out that it can't ever happen naturally, it was really hard.
31: So the couple started searching for anything that could help them. A nurse comes into Diana's exam room to take a blood sample. Diana's already been through six other IVF cycles. Her arms are scarred from all the blood draws she's gone through. So she's braced for another rough one. Okay, my
25: friend, quick little poke. You okay? Yes, thank you. You found it easily today. I did.
31: (laughs) Diana even retired from teaching elementary school kids to focus on getting pregnant. Plus, she says, it just got too painful to work with kids every day when she wanted children of her own so badly. After she changes into a hospital gown, Diana's doctor arrives to do yet another ultrasound of her ovaries,
19: All right, Diana.
31: which she's nicknamed Mona and Lisa.
25: So, yeah, let's get started with the ultrasound. See how Mona and Lisa are doing. Exactly. <laughs> Our
7: friends. All right, this is that ultrasound.
31: Each round of IVF has been grueling blood tests, ultrasounds, daily shots with powerful hormones, painful procedures, and then there's the emotional roller coaster of hope and disappointment.
25: There was a lot of shame. We did not, um, until recently, we never talked about this with people. So people are going to be surprised to hear about it on the radio.
31: (laughs) Her husband's insurance pays most of their bills. Paul's now 39 and works as a computer engineer. He underwent surgeries and has been taking medication to try to boost his sperm count.
13: It's some sort of primal kind of coding in our DNA. This impulse that you want to procreate to help proliferate life for the partner that you love. To create this amazing being that's just a representation of you.
31: But nothing worked. Finally, this past summer, Diana tested positive on a pregnancy test for the first time.
25: I surprised my husband when he came home from work. We were super excited, and we were just ecstatic. And it's... It was wonderful until we found out that...
31: Diana was having a miscarriage.
25: It's like a death in the family. A death that you can't even really acknowledge because... You weren't even really pregnant for that long and you didn't get to meet them and you won't it's been devastating for sure i guess you just don't realize how important it is to you until you're faced with the reality that it might not be possible
31: diana and paul haven't given up And earlier this year, the couple heard about something that scientists are trying to develop to help couples like them called in vitro gametogenesis, or IVG. IVG would make eggs or sperm for anyone from just a single one of their skin cells.
25: If it does become a reality, it's going to help so many people, just like us, people who really want to be genetically related to their future children. My husband and I would be perfect candidates for that If there was a way to make sperm with his DNA and eggs with my DNA, we would 100% sign up for it.
31: Now, the Zuckticks know scientists could hit a dead end and never get IVG to work safely. And even if they do, IVG could come too late for them. They're open to adopting or using donor eggs, sperm, or embryos. But even the possibility of IVG gives people like Diana and Paul hope.
25: I completely understand why somebody would wonder, why does it matter so much? Like, why is it so important to you? But it's, for some reason, I find it very important. I want to try whatever I possibly can to increase our chances at having a child that is genetically related to me and my husband, a little child that looks a little like him and a little like me, and who knows if there'll be anything like us, but... It's something we want to try.
31: Same goes for many gay and trans couples who long for kids genetically related to both partners, too.
20: Wow, what a cool technology. That could really be a game changer.
31: Tara Ferguson is 30 years old. She lives in the Dallas-Fort Worth area with her wife, Delilah, who's 35.
20: I have always wanted to have a biologically related child. It's not that I would require it to be a parent, but it would be a preference. And same with the preference of having the child be biologically related to my partner. But we don't just get to try the old-fashioned way.
31: But IVG's also raising lots of fears.
30: Like so many new technologies, it holds a lot of promise and also a lot of threats.
31: Sonia Suter is a bioethicist and law professor at George Washington University. She says IVG could be used to mass-produce human embryos, making it way easier to screen out embryos with genes for, say, deafness, blindness, increasing discrimination against disabled people, and IVG could hasten the day when designer babies become a real possibility.
30: But what if we start moving towards trying to pick a child who is as tall as possible? Or if we look for genes associated with intelligence to sort of create an uber race, then obviously I think that's fraught with all sorts of issues.
31: But for now, people like Diana Zucknick only have IVF as an option. All right, Diana,
8: ultrasound's finished. Good stuff. Diana
31: wraps up her IVF
8: visit. Get your ass cracked the door and I'll come back and answer any questions you may have.
31: The doctor tells her to get ready to come back sometime within the next few days. That's when he'll try yet again to extract healthy eggs from her ovaries. Diana just turned 41.
25: Last night at my uh, birthday celebration, my best friend asked me like, how's it going? And um, I really couldn't answer because I feel like at this point I have to sort of just numb myself. I can't get my hopes up too high because we've done that before.
31: The Zucknicks say they get why a future where IVG actually becomes available might spook people.
25: I completely understand the potential unethical uses that it could lead to, but I don't want a designer baby. I just want a baby that is a little bit of me and a little bit of my husband. I just wish that it was easier and possible for us. And who knows, maybe one day, maybe one day it will be.
31: Rob Stein, NPR News, Austin, Mm -hmm. Texas.
0: This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in 15 minutes, the latest on former President Trump's civil fraud trial. Then tomorrow, comedy has a storied history in Boston, with big names getting their start on local stages. But the modern comedy scene doesn't always reflect the city's diversity. Tomorrow morning on WBUR, how an emerging queer comedy showcase is changing that. It's 40 degrees in Boston at 5.30.
21: WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, supporting your health this sniffle season with specialists who can suggest their favorite remedies in Porter Square, Brighton, and at cambridgenaturals.com.
7: I'm Scott Tong. Arlington National Cemetery plans to remove a mammoth Confederate monument cemetery calls the structure a mythologized
23: version of the confederacy
16: that touches upon virtually every lost
10: cause theme every central element of the lost cause narrative
7: that's here and now listening in tomorrow at noon on 90.9
3: wbur
6: live from npr news in culver city california i'm dwayne brown a day after much of the world called for a ceasefire in Gaza, the U.S. State Department says it too wants the conflict to end, but not until Hamas is defeated. In Paris, Michelle Kellerman has more.
4: 153 countries voted for a U.N. General Assembly resolution demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. The U.S. was one of just 10 countries voting no. State Department spokesman Matthew Miller shrugs off the lopsided vote.
7: It is clear that the world wants this conflict to end which is a goal that we share. We want this conflict to end. We don't want to see it go on uh, a day longer than is necessary.
4: But he says the October 7th attack by Hamas should have been a wake-up call for the world. And he says the U.S. does not think it makes sense to stop Israel's military campaign, while, in his words, the plotters of that Hamas attack sit in their tunnels stockpiling weapons. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department.
6: Federal safety regulators are taking the first step toward requiring vehicle sensors that can detect whether a driver is under the influence of alcohol and stop them from driving. NPR's Joel rolls reports the technology could save thousands of lives every year. For now, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration is gathering information about the current state of the technology to guide its approach to proposed regulations when
13: it is, quote, mature. The agency will look at things like air sensors in a vehicle that recognize alcohol on a driver's breath touch sensors that look for alcohol in the blood, and systems that track a driver's gaze or steering. Congress required adoption of the technology in the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Law, but the process of crafting rules can take years
6: as regulators gather input from the auto industry, safety advocates, and others. More than 13,000 people were killed in crashes involving a drunk driver in 2021. Joel Rose, NPR News. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street. This is NPR.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. Deaths from drug overdoses remain at record high numbers in Massachusetts roughly a decade after the current opioid crisis began. Part of the problem is that other drugs can be laced with the synthetic opioid fentanyl. Deirdre Calvert at the State Department of Public Health says fentanyl is killing people who don't realize it might be in cocaine or a fake prescription pill.
32: We have a
9: toxic drug supply that does not just affect people who have an, an opiate use disorder.
0: The State Department of Public Health is for the first time endorsing overdose prevention centers as a necessary tool to curb overdose deaths. WBOR's Martha Biebinger has that part of the story.
10: The endorsement is in a study that says communities could open sites where drug use is monitored to avoid deaths if some state drug laws are changed. Federal drug laws would still prohibit illegal drug activity. But Public Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein says with overdoses at record highs, the state needs to try this
11: option. Overdose prevention centers would be an effective means at reducing overdoses and fatalities in the Commonwealth. There has never been an overdose death reported at a sanctioned overdose prevention center.
10: State leaders have not committed to revising the laws needed to open these centers. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Martha Biebinger.
0: Local advocacy organizations are reacting to news the U.S. Supreme Court will hear an appeal that could reimpose restrictions on a widely available abortion medication. Mifepristone was first approved by the FDA in the year 2000. The Planned Parenthood League of Massachusetts says the drug is safe and still legal for now. The head of the ACLU of Massachusetts says the Supreme Court's decision to hear the case is another step toward the extremists' goal to ban abortion nationwide. The state's emergency shelter wait list has hit a new high. 242 families are currently waiting for space in the Massachusetts system. That number has climbed since officials implemented a cap on the state's emergency shelters last month. That's when the number of families reached the state-imposed limit of 7,500 families. It's 534. WBUR
9: supporters include Globe Santa, bringing books and toys to children in need. Joy is a gift every child deserves. Join the Globe Santa tradition. Donate now at
0: globesanta.org. Conditions should be great to see the Geminid meteor shower tonight. We'll have mostly clear skies overnight. Temperatures will dip to the mid-20s. Tomorrow looks sunny with highs in the mid-30s. This is WBUR.
22: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, Designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from a single platform. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
5: I'm
13: Juana Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. New Hampshire is the first state to hold a primary next month, and there's an unusual situation playing out for Democrats there. President Joe Biden isn't on the ballot, and that's opened the door for a challenger looking to make a splash. NPR senior White House correspondent Tamara Keith reports.
33: Democratic Congressman Dean Phillips was heading for the elevators. He'd spent an hour at the New Hampshire Veterans Home trying to convince the elderly residents that it's time for a new generation of leadership. Most of the people he'd met appeared to be learning of his existence for the first time, until Winston McCarty stopped him on the way out.
5: Congratulations well, thank for, you. for giving the people another choice. Oh my God, can I'm... I give you a hug?
33: A dispute between the Democratic National Committee and New Hampshire about the primary calendar means President Biden didn't register to run in the state's primary. And in this void... Phillips sees an opportunity. At his next stop, the Riverwoods Retirement Community, a few dozen Phillips curious residents filed into a room that could have held many more. Faye Baker is an independent voter.
5: Oh, it's a new face. I want to hear what he has to say.
33: However, she added, she is pretty satisfied with Biden. As Phillips made his case to these voters, he didn't really hit Biden on policy. As the White House points out, in Congress, he has voted with the president 100% of the time. His issue is with Biden's age and dismal poll numbers.
6: Voters want choices, especially in a year like this, where the risk of losing to Donald Trump is a huge concern to many of us and I think to the future of our country.
33: Later in an interview, Phillips went so far as to say he thinks Biden should drop out. If come May or June, polls show him trailing Trump.
6: I don't know why you would run if you are the one who's going to lose and ruin your whole legacy against the most dangerous man in the world.
33: Phillips has staked his long shot bid on winning the January 23rd New Hampshire Democratic primary. Whatever that means in a year when the incumbent president isn't on the ballot.
6: My contention is... On January 24th, that morning after, I think, the head, I think the headlines are going to say, wow, 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 what? <laughs> wow, <laughs> wow, uh, things changed a little last night and uh, we got a race.
33: The state's Democratic establishment is now rallying to make sure Biden isn't embarrassed on primary day. They want voters to skip past Phillips and the other names they see on the ballot and write in Biden's name. Matt Wilhelm is the party's leader in the New Hampshire House of Representatives.
7: You know, what's the story going to be on the Democratic side? It needs to be that Joe Biden uh, won this unconventional Democratic primary uh, as a write-in candidate and is on his way to a second term.
33: More than a thousand volunteers have signed up to get the word out. Wilhelm personally plans to stand outside of a Manchester, New Hampshire polling place on primary day with a sign encouraging people to write in Biden.
7: What I don't want to see is uh, the Biden-Harris administration penalized for, uh, you know, some misguided DNC rules uh, when at the end of the day, Granite State voters overwhelmingly support the president.
33: So far, they've printed 500 signs, and they're raising money to make more. But the Biden campaign itself is steering clear of all this. A write-in campaign is unpredictable. If expectations are too high for Biden heading in, coming up short could be the headline. Tamara Keith, NPR News.
17: Ten years ago today, there were a lot of sleepy music fans. That's because Beyoncé dropped a surprise album at midnight. The news spread fast, and thousands of her fans and music critics all stayed up until the wee hours to take it all in, but only if they were willing to pay $15.99 to download the entire album. The album, which was simply titled Beyonce, veered away from pop industry norms. There were no singles, no promotions, no marketing, and it went straight to the top of the charts. But did it change the industry? NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siolkas is here to talk about that. Hey there. Hey there. All right, Anastasia, take us back to 2013. What did this album drop look like? How was it different than everything else that was going on in pop music then?
20: So when this Beyoncé album arrived, the pop industry had drifted away from this idea from the 60s and 70s that you would sit and listen to a whole album all the way through. And then with the birth of downloading and then streaming, pop music had largely reverted to this very regressive 1950s kind of thing in which singles were the only thing that mattered, both artistically and economically. And Beyoncé actually talked about this after the album was released.
9: Now, people only listen to a few seconds of a song on their iPods. They don't really invest in a whole album. It's all about the single and the hype is so much that gets between
20: the music and the artist and the fans.
17: Now, of course, Beyoncé's diehard fans did not need traditional media to find out about the surprise album.
20: No, for sure not. And because of the way that Beyonce released this album as this one whole concept, she really left it to her fans to decide what was important, what tracks they liked best, because her record label couldn't essentially tell the public in advance what the bangers were going to be, right? Every time a record label releases a single from an artist or a band before a whole record drops, they're pretty much putting a neon arrow on certain songs and saying, hey, this is what you want to listen to. And here instead, Beyonce was telling her fans, you listen and then you decide. Certain songs like EXO, for example, emerged as fan favorites, but they weren't preordained.
17: other artists out there managed to replicate
20: or even just follow Beyonce's success? Uh, Taylor Swift.
25: <laughs> I mean, these days,
17: isn't the answer kind of always Taylor Swift?
20: I, I think so. And in 2020, Swift released two full surprise albums, Folklore and then Evermore. And both of those went straight to number one.
17: Okay, okay, but not everyone is Taylor or Beyonce. Is this a path that other artists can follow now?
20: Well, in the wake of Beyonce, there were a lot of acts who have done similar things. I'm thinking of U2, Frank Ocean, Rihanna. But look, if nobody already knows who you are and you drop a surprise album, honestly, who's going to care so much? In this case, though, Beyonce got around the music industry. She got her fans, her beehive, to do the promotional labor for free instead of paying an army of industry insiders to do all that legwork.
17: And then let's keep in mind that Beyoncé did something similar again in 2016 with the release of
20: Lemonade. Yeah, absolutely. It was almost as if she was saying, you know, the success of Beyoncé was no fluke. I'm just going to do it again. And that time she took it one step farther. She released it on a platform that she co-owned, Tidal Music. Beyoncé really has always been about both art and commerce and very savvy about both. That's NPR's Anastasia Siulkas. Thank you, Anastasia. Thanks for having me. <laughs>
13: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. With the words, the people rest, testimony concluded today in the $250 million civil fraud trial against former President Donald Trump. NPR's Andrea Bernstein is here to talk about the overall case and what's coming next. Hey there. Hey Ari. So to recap, Trump was supposed to testify this week and he changed his mind at the last minute, said he wasn't coming. So how did the case end up?
27: with a battle of the expert witnesses. Trump's final witness was an accounting professor at New York University who said he saw no accounting fraud in Trump's financial statements. So the AG put on a rebuttal witness, an accounting professor from another prestigious New York school, Cornell University, to say, wait a minute, that's not how it's done. The professor, Eric Lewis, testified that Trump had not followed the rules when it came to valuing his properties. Lewis wasn't five minutes into his testimony before Trump lawyer Charles Kai started objecting very strenuously, which prompted the assistant attorney general, Kevin Wallace, to erupt, referring to the professor. He's been qualified as an expert, Kyes said. Not in the real world. Wallace said he is out of order. The judge overruled the question, and that's kind of how the case ended up.
13: Uh, sounds like a lot of drama in the courtroom. Was that pretty typical of how the last 10 weeks of testimony have gone?
27: Yeah. So... The differences in the way the parties see the facts got pretty heated at times. The AG's theory is that Trump lied and lied about the value of his assets, that he fudged the books, and that as a result of that lying, Trump made hundreds of millions of dollars that he shouldn't have made. And the judge has partially endorsed that theory. Even before the trial began, he issued a ruling saying the AG had proven persistent and repeated fraud. So the trial was really about the issue of intent and how much an ill-gotten gains Trump will have to pay back to the state. For its part, the defense argued no one was harmed. The main bank involved in all of this, Deutsche Bank, wanted Trump as a client in its private wealth division and was willing to give him great loan rates. And that Trump properties are, well, all spectacular and able to command top dollar.
13: All throughout this trial, Trump has had a running commentary outside of the courtroom Has that affected what's going on inside the court?
27: Inside the courtroom, which he visited nine times, Trump had to be quiet to rise when the bailiff yelled, all rise. He had to sit through one of his attorneys said at the outset would be, quote, excruciating detail. She made good on that, by the way. Donald Trump did testify vociferously as part of the AG's case, but he seemed to be getting the most energy from these quick hallway scrums he held outside the courtroom, where he called the trial rigged and the judge biased, pre-budding a possible bad verdict. It's kind of like how he said the 2020 election was going to be rigged before balloting had even started.
13: So when are we going to see the verdict?
27: The judge asked for legal briefs January 5th. The briefs will be argued January 11th, and then there will be a verdict sometime in the weeks after that. For context, the Iowa caucus is January 15th. The New Hampshire primary is January 23rd. So sometime around then.
13: That's NPR's Andrea Bernstein. Thanks. Thank
27: you.
0: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes here on All Things Considered, the U.S. Supreme Court says it'll take up a lower court's decision that would make it harder to get the abortion pill mifepristone.
2: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business, providing gig speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities.
0: Join WBUR for our annual reading of Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol on Tuesday, December 19th at City Space. All proceeds support Rosie's Place, a sanctuary for women in need. Go to wbur.org events for tickets. Looks like a pretty nice stretch of weather coming up. It'll be mainly clear tonight. Lows will be in the mid-20s. We'll have lots of sun tomorrow. Highs will be in the mid-30s. Friday looks sunny again and warmer, near 50 degrees. Around 50 again Saturday. A few more clouds, but still quite a bit of sun. And then Sunday looks mostly cloudy with temperatures in the upper 40s. It is 40 degrees in Boston right now. Thanks so much for listening to 90.9 WBUR.
21: WBUR supporters include the Christian Science Plaza. Start First Night with a 2 p.m. organ concert and free tour of the How Do You See the World experience. Visit christianscience.com firstnight.
24: I'm Daryl C. Murphy. WBUR's journalism is essential across our community and in your own daily life. Listener support keeps WBUR going. It's the largest share of our funding. As you make tax-deductible year-end contributions to organizations that make a positive difference in your life and in our communities, put WBUR on your list. Give now at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287.
17: From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Juana Summers.
7: And I'm Scott Detrow. A long time ago, November 1978 to be exact, instead of episodes of The Incredible Hulk and Wonder Woman, CBS aired a holiday special that was, well, totally out of this world.
19: The Star Wars Holiday Special.
7: That's right. Mark Hamill, Harrison Ford, and Carrie Fisher all appeared in their roles as Luke Han Solo and Leia, But there were guest stars, too. People like B. Arthur were there. There was singing and dancing. There were skits. George Lucas had authorized the Star Wars Holiday Special, but, as you could possibly tell from that description, he hated it. It never aired again, and instead it became a beloved bootleg, passed around from fan to fan. Now a documentary called A Disturbance of the Force looks back at the special, talking to some of the famous fans who love it and the people who made it, and it asks the key questions, why? How did this ever happen? And others. Linda Holmes of NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour joins us now to cover this strange territory. Welcome, Linda.
32: Thank you so much for having me. This is very exciting. I know you are a Star Wars guy.
7: I am, and I can still remember like the first time I came across clips of this on like the GeoCities era internet and just thinking like yep. what is going on? Like what what is this?
1: Mhm. Mhm.
7: How did this special become become so legendary?
32: Well, in the documentary, there are a bunch of guys who are Star Wars people like uh, Patton Oswalt and Weird Al Yankovic and other kind of famous nerds. And they talk about how the fact that they never released this on any kind of home video officially made it feel sort of forbidden. Yeah. So having a copy of it. Uh, or even really knowing about it was a currency among fans. But I do think that also it would not be as famous as it is if it were not as as weird as it is.
7: And for those who have not had the delight of watching clips of this, how would you quantify the weirdness of this? Of <laughs>
32: this I would say on a scale of 1 to 10, the weirdness is a, at least a 12 or 13. Yeah. Uh, the the story in the special to the degree there is one is about Chewbacca trying to get back to his home planet to celebrate something called Life Day with his family. And they basically just hang a bunch of skits on that frame. So for example, Chewbacca's wife tries to follow along as a TV chef who's sort of a Julia Child type with forearms like makes Bantha taste. Surprise.
13: Now, today
3: I'm going to be using the tenderest cut of the bantha, the loin. The loin is very tasty and serves four nicely. But of course, if your family has
1: a hearty appetite, I would suggest then that old popular holiday favorite, the bantha rump.
32: The chef is played by Harvey Corman, and it's just, it's entirely comedic, but it's just kind of goofy. But I, I would have to say, I have to, I have to defend as the weirdest part, uh, Chewbacca's father, whose name is Itchy, Putting on a virtual reality helmet and watching a kind of sensual presentation by Diane Carroll, who they explain in the documentary replaced the original choice who was Cher. There is no other way to say it. It seems like Diane Carroll is trying to turn Itchy on and you're not going to believe me. So I do
27: have tape. Oh, yes. I can feel
21: my creation. (laughs) I'm getting your message. Are you
7: getting mine? Oh my God, I forgot. I (laughs) forgot about this particular detail. Like, yeah. It's quite (laughs) odd.
32: It's quite odd.
7: I mean, like the people who made Star Wars had some high quality, you know, ideas. But then this happened. Like, who was like, you know what? This is going well. I like this script.
32: Well, what they say in the documentary is that Star Wars had come out in 1977 and been this enormous hit, but now it was 1978 and there was some concern at Lucasfilm and elsewhere that people would forget all about it before the next movie came out because this is kind of before star wars was what star wars is now so who knows if they're going to care by the time the second movie comes out they also saw an opportunity to sell toys to kids at holiday time because now you're you know a year and a half after the movie you remind everybody how much they liked these characters still though how did how did it get so goofy Well, one of my favorite parts of the documentary is there's a rundown of what variety specials looked like in the 1970s in general, and Mm -hmm. the fact that at the time, this wasn't all that unusual a format. In fact, Star Wars had had a segment on Donnie and Marie, of course, was Donnie and Marie Osmond, the world's most wholesome brother and sister who had their own show. And that segment on their show is a lot stranger than the holiday special. (laughs) So there were a lot of specials and variety shows just getting kind of thrown out there. So... The people who produced this special kind of came from that world, from the variety special world, and they say that George Lucas mostly tapped out and didn't participate very much in putting it together. So it's really a variety show thing and not a Star Wars thing.
7: And he learned a very important lesson, and then didn't let anybody else contribute to the prequels. And he overlearned that lesson. Um... I mean, I, I assume
32: <laughs> it's one of the steps on his path to being to you know controlling the the franchise the way he did for such a long time.
7: Yeah, but. But that gets to the the broader second and third life of this thing is that it happened and the George Lucas just 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 disowned it. Right. There, there's no other way to put it. Right.
32: Right. And I think if he hadn't done that, it might not have become as big as it is. It kind of developed this this what doesn't George Lucas want you to see quality. Uh, is it out there in the wilds of the Internet? Of course. Yes. But just like those VHS tapes, the, those are bootlegs. So in a world where it seems like everybody releases everything. Anything that seems a little bit like somebody doesn't want you to see it has a, a special charm. Yeah.
7: I mean, you, you are a critic. Uh, do you think the Star Wars Holiday Special is worth trying to track down and watch for yourself if you haven't seen it?
32: You know, I I personally tried. I did. But a lot of it is is just really boring. At the beginning, Chewie's family is just... Wookieing around their treehouse, and they're just doing the wookie noise that I'm not going to try to do. <laughs> and there aren't any subtitles, so you're just trying to figure it out from context clues. And this goes on for nine minutes. So I can't recommend the special, but I do recommend the documentary, which has a ton of clips and, and will get you the highlights.
7: I just want people listening to know that the script here has a note in brackets. The Wookieing Around is at about 5530.
27: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, that's just me
32: making sure that you guys know where to find the Wookieing Around in the documentary.
7: Just just doing the careful production that did not happen on the Star Wars Holiday Special. <laughs> The documentary is a disturbance in The Force, and you can rent it on demand from most of your online outlets. Linda, thank you for this really critical, important conversation.
32: Thank you, Scott. May the Force be with you, obviously.
22: You're listening to All Things Considered. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Fisher Investments. Fisher Investments team of specialists offer guidance on investing, retirement income, and social security. Fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. From the Lodestar Foundation, inspired by the principle that helping someone else less fortunate is a path to a happier, healthier, and more meaningful life. Learn more at lodestarfoundation.org. From the FDA, its Remove the Risk campaign encourages people to dispose of the unused, unwanted, and expired opioid medications in their homes. Learn more at fda.gov remove the risk. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station, The Geminid meteor shower
0: peaks tonight. There's a good chance you'll be able to see it here in the sky above southern New England. The celestial event should be most visible between 7 p.m. and 2 a.m. The meteor shower is named after the Gemini constellation of stars from which it appears to emanate. Stargazers should look to the left of Orion's belt, and you should have good sky conditions. Right now it's 40 degrees and clear.
9: We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Sincere Foundation, which supports organizations that provide food security, housing stability, and safe spaces, and envisions a future where everyone has the opportunity to celebrate, recognize milestones, and honor memories. Sincere Foundation. Learn more and see if your program qualifies at sincere.com. I'm Ideas and Opinion Editor Chloe Axelson and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM
17: Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR News Station.
0: The legal case surrounding the abortion pill Mifepristone winds on as it will now head to the nation's highest court. The Supreme Court says it'll review a lower court's decision that would make the pill less accessible. It's Wednesday, December 13th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in for Lisa Mullins. A key federal program for gathering foreign intelligence is about to expire, and there's debate about it being reauthorized.
19: The idea that we would let an indispensable tool like that lapse would be a a grave mistake.
0: Also ahead, a Boston-area jazz pianist and retired physician confronts his own difficult diagnosis as he gears up for a big musical performance.
3: I'm a cancer person now, so there's sadness, but it's not grounded in a deep place. And I vote for living, and I vote for living as vitally and authentically as I can manage. It's 6.01. The news is first.
1: Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. On this vote, the yeas
26: are 221 and the nays are 212. The resolution is adopted.
1: House lawmakers voting along party lines to formally authorize an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. That's despite lingering questions among even some in the Republican Party over whether an investigation has produced any evidence of misconduct on the president's part. That includes while in office as president and also previously as vice president. However, House Speaker Mike Johnson and his leadership team have been under mounting pressure to show progress in what has been a nearly year-long probe centered on business dealings of Biden's family members, including son Hunter Biden. One of the... Out of the 138 remaining hostages held in Gaza, eight are American citizens, or dual American-Israeli citizens. And President Biden met today with their families. Senator's Mara Eliasson reports the administration has been trying for over two months to get the hostages released.
5: One of those still being held is the 35-year-old son of Jonathan dechel Hen. It was
6: a terrific, terrific meeting and conversation. We all came away feeling that as uh, families of hostages, of American Israeli hostages that we could have no better friend uh, in Washington or in the White House than President Biden himself and his administration.
5: The hostage families said that within days of the massacre on October 7th, they were contacted by U.S. government officials, including the president and the secretary of state. And these families say they believe the administration is committed to getting their loved ones home. But they wouldn't discuss any details of their meeting, including whether they were told about any progress in the hostage negotiations. Mara Lyason NPR News, the White House.
1: German media giant Axel Springer is announcing a licensing deal with chat GPT creator OpenAI NPR's Bobby Allen reports it comes as questions swirl about the artificial intelligence company's use of copyrighted material.
7: OpenAI says it will pay to incorporate Axel Springer's articles into ChatGPT's answers to questions. Axel Springer operates Politico, Business Insider, and other major German publications. The deal follows a similar licensing agreement struck between OpenAI and the Associated Press. Not all publishers have been quick to reach agreements with OpenAI. The New York Times has been considering legal action against OpenAI after discussions with the company broke down. ChatGPT has been trained on a vast pool of information from the Internet. Some of it is copyrighted material, but OpenAI argues it is protected by a legal doctrine known as fair use, which is now being challenged in court bobby allen npr news a
1: key wholesale inflation gauge largely mirrored consumer inflation numbers showing little change last month government says this producer price index which measures the cost of goods before they head down the pipeline to consumers was flat in november announcement by the federal reserve it will hold interest rates steady played well on wall street the dow jumped 512 points this is npr Supreme Court is agreeing to take up the debate over a commonly prescribed abortion medication, the case involving availability of the drug mifepristone, the first major case since the court overturned the constitutional right to abortion a year ago. Justices today agreeing to hear arguments in the case. The Biden administration and the New York maker of the drug are seeking to reverse an appellate court decision that would cut access to the drug through the mail and impose other restrictions even in states where abortion remains legal. Library of Congress is announcing the latest editions of the National Film Registry. As NPR's net, it will be explains, every year the library picks 25 films to be preserved for posterity.
33: This year's selections include one of the biggest action movies ever.
1: Hasta la vista, baby.
33: Terminator 2, Judgment Day, was a landmark sequel when it came out in 1991. It's among the historically significant movies intended to represent the depth and breadth of American film. Other inductees this year include a 1954 documentary about Helen Keller and a musical from 1980. Fame is about high school students who study the performing arts. It was one of the era's first great teen movies, and its styles had a template for MTV. Other movies include the Oscar winners Apollo 13 and 12 Years a Slave, as well as a number of low-budget, independent, and experimental films. Netta Ulibi.
1: NPR News. Crude oil futures prices moved higher today. Benchmark crude was up 86 cents a barrel to end the session at 69.47 a barrel on the New York Mercantile Exchange. I'm Jack Spear, NPR News in Washington.
0: And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lynn Jolliker in Boston. The Boston City Council has signed off on an $82 million collective bargaining agreement with the city's largest police union. The funding measure passed unanimously. But WBUR's Simone Rios reports some councillors wanted to see more reforms in the contract.
24: One of the biggest changes in the contract is police details will now be available to law enforcement outside the department, like university police. Outgoing counselor Kendra Lara said the change is a historic first for Boston, but urged strong oversight as it's implemented.
28: We need to make sure, either by way of ordinance or by way of holding this administration accountable, which has proven to be incredibly difficult when it comes to police and policing, that the jobs that we are creating are going to the people in the city of Boston.
24: The head of the police union said Boston officers are glad to see unfilled details go to other officers, as well as to certain trained civilians. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Simone Rios.
0: Governor Maura Healy is asking President Biden to issue a major disaster declaration in Massachusetts as a result of a major September storm. Such a declaration would financially support the state's ongoing recovery from the storm that caused severe flooding. Some communities got more than seven inches of rain, prompting evacuations, sheltering-in-place orders, and construction of temporary roadways to allow first responders access to homes. The state has administered more than 1,000 COVID and flu vaccines to newly arrived migrants. State officials provided the vaccines during legal clinics offered to expedite work authorizations. The clinics were coordinated by the state and the Biden administration for families in the emergency shelter system. The U.S. House continues to debate whether to formally authorize an impeachment inquiry into President Biden. On the floor today, Massachusetts Democrat Jim McGovern blasted Republicans, saying they're working for Donald Trump and not the American people.
6: He says, jump. They respond, how high? Uh, This whole thing is an extreme political stunt. It has no credibility, no legitimacy, and no integrity. It is a sideshow, a distraction from the fact that Republicans have done nothing.
0: The Associated Press reports the Republican-led investigation has not produced evidence of misconduct by the president. It has raised some ethical questions. Provincetown officials have effectively decriminalized the use of psychedelic drugs, such as so-called magic mushrooms. The town select board this week approved a resolution instructing local police not to prioritize such cases. It also calls for the Cape and Islands District Attorney's Office not to prosecute similar cases. Six other municipalities have approved similar measures. Well, skies will be mainly clear tonight, temperatures will dip to the mid-20s. Tomorrow we'll have bright, sunny skies. Highs will be in the mid-30s. Friday should bring lots of sunshine and temps around 50. Right now, it's 40 degrees in Boston. This is 90.9 WBUR.
2: WBUR supporters include the Cy Sims Foundation since 1985, supporting advances in science, education, and the arts towards a fairer, more just, and civil society. More information is available at SciSimsFoundation.org.
17: This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Juana
13: Summers. And I'm Ari Shapiro. In a moment, we'll hear about the political fight over the future of a key foreign surveillance program. First, to the Supreme Court, which entered the abortion debate again today. It agreed to review a lower court decision that would make the commonly used abortion pill Mifepristone less accessible. A Supreme Court decision on this case, which would come next year, could not only affect the way the FDA does its job, but also have a major impact on the presidential election. NPR Politics correspondent Danielle Kurtzleben and Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin are here to explain what is at stake. Good to have you both with us. Hey, Ari. Hi. Danielle, let's start with you. Tell us about the case the Supreme Court's going to hear.
14: Sure. So this case is about the availability of mifepristone, which is one of two drugs used in medication abortions. In this case, an anti-abortion rights group called the Alliance for Hippocratic Medicine brought a suit against the FDA, in part arguing against regulations on mifepristone that have been loosened over time. They don't think it should have been loosened. Starting in 2016, there were a number of changes. For example, the FDA made prescriptions available via telemedicine and made it possible to send the pills to patients through the mail. Now in this case, the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals said those regulations shouldn't have been loosened. They agreed with the plaintiffs. They said that the drug shouldn't be so widely available. Now had the Supreme Court not decided today to take this up, that would mean those tighter curbs on the drug would stand. But since they will take this up, mifepristone will remain available for now in its current form But a Supreme Court ruling, when it comes, could mean tighter restrictions on the drug or it might not. It totally depends.
13: Okay, so the drug is still available for now, at least. But Sydney, what are the stakes here? What could change?
15: Yeah, I mean, mifepristone is, like Danielle said, used in medication abortions, and those now account for more than half of abortions in the United States. The drug was approved in 2000, and it was a big deal in the U.S. because it was the first time women here could end their pregnancies without needing to undergo a surgical procedure. But globally, it actually wasn't a groundbreaking approval. Mifepristone had been approved up to a dozen years in other countries by that point. So there was plenty of evidence. It was safe and effective, and of course, there's even more now that it's been approved in the U.S. for 23 years. Overall, mifepristone increases access to abortion care and can currently be used up to 10 weeks gestation. Rolling back that approval to these pre-2016 restrictions would limit that access. The drug works by blocking a hormone needed for pregnancy to continue. That's called progesterone. And it's usually taken with a second drug, misoprostol, 24 hours later, which causes the uterus to contract and then empty.
13: But misoprostol's approval is not on the chopping block, right?
15: Right. That's right. This is just about mifepristone. There are misoprostol-only abortions, and those could continue even if the court tightens restrictions on mifepristone. But misoprostol-only abortions are considered less effective and more painful than abortions using both drugs together. And if this case is successful, abortion opponent- opponents could come up with a way to take action against misoprostol next.
13: This opinion could come two years after the Supreme Court overturned Roe versus Wade. Danielle, how much could this case further change Change the abortion landscape in the US?
14: Very, very much in a really huge way. Like I said earlier, this ruling, depending on how the justices rule, it could mean that patients can get the drug less easily. Uh, For example, if justices decided to roll back regulations to that pre-2016 status, it could mean, for example, that pills aren't sent through the mail anywhere, even in states where abortion is legal right now. And this would also be a huge deal, particularly for patients in states where abortion is tightly restricted, because right now those patients can still get the pills through the mail. So one way to think about this very simply is this, is that the Dobbs ruling overturning Roe sent abortion back to the states. States could determine up to a point what their abortion laws look like. This case would in some ways affect abortion availability nationwide. Hmm. That is a really big deal. But there's one other thing to note here is that, yes, the justices could uh, could tighten the restrictions or not. But they could also simply say, according to legal scholars, that plaintiffs didn't have legal standing here, that this was not their case to bring. Now, in which case the justices wouldn't rule on the legality of of the arguments that they're making. They would just say, regulations stay where they are right now. We're not really taking this up.
13: Mm. Sydney, you cover the pharmaceuticals industry. What could this mean for drug companies?
15: So this would set a precedent for court interference in FDA expert decision making. For decades, the FDA has been the global leader in approving countless drugs based on rigorous safety and efficacy standards. And now a court, not the FDA's doctors and scientists, a court could undo that. Here's Professor Robin Feldman at the University of California Law in San Francisco.
16: If the decision is broad enough to leave room to challenge all of those. The agency
15: could be under considerable assault in the years to come. The FDA doesn't want to be sued. For one thing, it's expensive. So it could make the agency more cautious when it comes to drugs that are politically charged think drugs for HIV drugs for gender affirming care and companies might not want to invest in developing some drugs if even after meeting FDA standards and winning that approval the approval can just be undone or limited by the courts so it makes that business investment a lot more risky and the industry has argued that it will have a chilling effect on innovation
13: And then there's the politics. If the Supreme Court decides another landmark abortion case during a presidential election year, Danielle, what could that mean?
14: It could mean a lot. It depends, of course, on how they rule. But one thing we know from the 2022 midterms right after the Dobbs decision, and also that we know from this year's off-year elections, for example, in Virginia, is that abortion right now at least, really gets Democrats and Democratic-leaning voters really fired up. They are very upset about the overturning of Roe, of course. So were the Supreme Court to tighten those rules on Mifepristone, it would be a huge blow for pro-abortion rights groups. And Democrats would also definitely run on abortion rights. We already know this. For example, the Biden campaign put out a statement today. It says, mega Republicans led by Donald Trump are marching this country toward a full on national abortion ban. And if the Supreme Court strips away access to safe and effective medication abortion next year, it will be the latest step towards achieving that goal. That is very strident language from the Biden campaign. You can bet this would become a an absolutely huge issue in the 2024 presidential election if the Supreme Court decided to restrict the pills, which, again, we're gonna to have to see next year.
13: But we know, as of today, they are at least going to hear the case. Correct. Reporting there from NPR's Danielle Kurtzleben and Sydney Lupkin. Thank you both.
14: Thank you.
17: You bet. Congress is wrestling over what to do about a key tool for gathering foreign intelligence. The program is set to expire at the end of the year. National security officials are pushing hard for reauthorization, but lawmakers on both sides of the aisle want to make changes. The question is how far those changes should go. NPR's Ryan Lucas reports.
8: There is arguably no program that the U.S. government uses to gather foreign intelligence that stirs up as much controversy as what's known as Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Under this authority, the government can collect emails, text messages, and phone calls of foreigners overseas, even when they're talking to Americans. And it doesn't need an individual court order to do so. Administration officials say the program is irreplaceable. Here's Attorney General Merrick Garland speaking at a news conference last week.
18: If we don't have 702, we will not be able to protect the American people.
8: At that same news conference, FBI Director Christopher Wray called the program essential for protecting Americans from foreign terrorism, foreign cyber attacks and foreign spies.
19: The idea that we would let an indispensable tool like that lapse or, frankly, amend it in a way that gutted its effectiveness, in my view, would be a a grave mistake.
8: But just how to amend Section 702 without gutting its effectiveness is the thorny question now before Congress. Lawmakers have renewed the program twice before, the last time in 2018. Since then, new government reports have come out documenting FISA violations by the FBI including its Searching 702 databases for information about a sitting U.S. congressman, as well as a local political party. That has helped alter the political dynamics around the government's surveillance powers. Now, progressives who have long pushed for more civil liberties protections find themselves allies with far-right Republicans suspicious of the FBI. They have channeled their Pfizer reforms into a draft bill put forward by the House Judiciary Committee. It would implement sweeping changes, including, most notably, requiring a warrant to search the 702 database for a U.S. person's communications. Elizabeth Goytine of the Brennan Center for Justice calls it a strong reform bill. She says it would not place any restrictions on the government's ability to collect and review the communications of foreign targets.
12: But it would extend significant civil liberties protections to Americans and rein in warrantless access to americans communications under 702 and other surveillance
8: tools the biden administration and many national security officials say a warrant requirement is legally unnecessary and would cripple the fbi's ability to tackle fast-moving threats the administration and a lot of centrist lawmakers on capitol hill support a competing bill put forward by the house intelligence committee also known as H.I.P.S.I. it would implement some changes but leave the 702 authority largely intact and it would not impose a warrant requirement. The HIPC bill, I think, represents a pretty good balance between uh, the desire to keep the statute in effect and yet at the same time recognize that some reforms need to be made in light of experience. Glenn Gerstell served as the general counsel for the National Security Agency. It doesn't include the warrant requirement, um, but in other respects it represents, I think, a pretty balanced approach to recognizing we need to have a robust national security tool, while at the same time making some important privacy protections. But opponents of the Intelligence Committee's bill say that it contains language that would expand the government's surveillance powers.
12: I mean, this bill is really a wolf in sheep's clothing. It's masquerading as reform, but it actually does far more to expand surveillance than rein it in.
8: If it sounds like a lot to iron out before the current law expires at the end of the year, that's because it is. Leaders of the House and Senate have agreed instead to pass a short-term extension of the statute through mid-April. That is meant to give lawmakers more time to hammer out a final bill. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington.
13: Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
0: And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next on All Things Considered, retired Mount Auburn Hospital physician and jazz pianist Stanley Sagoff reflects on life, death, and his love of music. He's preparing for a big performance in Cambridge this weekend, not long after getting a difficult medical diagnosis.
2: WBUR supporters include the Boston Globe's Murder in Boston. A new podcast from the Boston Globe and HBO re-examines the Charles and Carol Stewart case, probing a story everyone thinks they know but doesn't, revealing hard truths, new findings, and changing the narrative of a pivotal time in Boston's history. Murder in Boston, wherever you get your podcasts.
0: On Wall Street, the Dow picked up more than 500 points today, 1.4 percent. The S&P and Nasdaq also gained 1.4 percent. In local business news, the parent company of several Boston radio stations is working to avoid defaulting on nearly $19 million in loans. A federal filing from last week shows Philadelphia-based Odyssey is trying to reach an agreement with lenders to restructure its debt and avoid bankruptcy. Odyssey owns sports talk station WEI and music stations Magic 106.7, Mix 104.1, and Big 103.3. This is WBUR.
2: WBUR supporters include Semester Off, integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Spring semester starts January 22nd. SemesterOff.com.
23: Now is the time to make a tax-deductible gift to
0: WBUR for this year. So give at WBUR.org or call 1-800-909-9287. Tonight will get quite chilly, dipping to the mid-20s under mostly clear skies. The next few days look sunny. We'll have highs in the mid-30s tomorrow, around 50 degrees on Friday and Saturday.
2: WBUR supporters include Cambridge Naturals, with a curated selection of organic groceries, natural body care and supplements, and bulk refillery. CambridgeNaturals.com.
16: This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. This Saturday night, Stanley Sagoff will be doing one of his favorite things, playing keyboard at the Regatta Bar in Cambridge with his longtime bandmates making music like this. Sagoff's been preparing for this performance from his home in Chestnut Hill. It's cozy in here. He's got keyboards, a computer, speakers, and CDs, including his own. There are beaded South African necklaces on the wall. This could only be the home of a jazz player.
3: (laughs) We have a small, waning, but still important influence.
16: (laughs) He hasn't performed in public since the pandemic began, but he has been making music. He gets up by 5.30 in the morning and hunkers down in his studio. He composes a new song every day.
3: I just completely trust myself. I'm going to put my fingers on the keys and whatever starts it is going to be where it starts. So what I recorded this morning, I presented on SoundCloud and it sounded like this.
16: Sagoff approaches his music with the creative intensity he seems to bring to everything in life, especially now. His life has changed in the past couple of years, even in the past couple of months. Sagoff recently retired after he spent more than five decades as a primary care physician. He treated generations of families around Boston, and he still teaches at Harvard, BU, and Tufts Medical Schools. He pursued medicine after he spent his childhood receiving medical care. Sagoff was born in South Africa with a genetic deficiency that caused him to have club feet and other deformities. He had 16 surgeries by the time he was 13 years old. And now he's a patient again. He got a jarring diagnosis this fall.
3: It's stage 4 metastatic melanoma in both lungs. Ten years ago, it was kiss him nicely goodbye diagnosis. It's not for some people now. It is still for most. I have some advantages, which I just more detail than I think I want to focus on now, but enough of them to make me optimistic that I can be monitored at present without treatment. That is pretty unusual.
16: So would Dr. Sagoff, in his office, tell Stanley Sagoff, as patient, to hold
3: off on yeah, treatment? Yeah, here's why. I'm healthy. I exercise every day. I cycle 10, 20 miles. I've got a loving, supportive family. I could complain. I could complain. <laughs> you know, and I do. I get miserable. I get terrified the horror of something growing in me that's not part of me, that biology is not mine and doesn't depend on me. But waking up, not waking up, I'd rather have this and talk about this and tell people it's not that bad. I mean, I have an illness, but I'm not at all sick. Take your best shot. Come to the regatta bar, second show. (laughs) I really want the evening to be about deep feeling. But the feeling is not grim. Is it going to affect your music? Yeah. Um, I have no bucket list. If I were to have died and not known I had this, I would have missed this conversation, Lisa. I like living. I don't crave living. I've lived plenty. I'm going to be 80. We are impermanent. We have a blip in time. It's just my time, Elisa. That's why, in a way, if I did die tomorrow, that would be okay. But the finitude itself, just like a musical sound, you play it and then it stops.
16: Sagoff picks up a brass bowl and hits it with a little mallet.
3: Still hear it. Still hear it. Okay. Um, A life, it seems to me, is is captured in some way in in sound expression. So what do you want to get out of um, by the end of your two performances at the regatta bar? Um, Let me say one brief thing about that. Why do I do music at all? I think it paints a picture of a world in which people listen respectfully and with joy and support to other people. And I think that's what makes people love it and respond to it. I think it's what music represents to me and to my players for sure. We are playing because we love to play with each other. And I trust these people. I'm very emotionally easily triggered at the moment because of a lot of things. Not the least of which, I haven't played in public for three years for people. I'm a cancer person now, and that's lonely. So there's sadness, but it's not grounded in a deep place and I vote for living and I vote for living as vitally and authentically as I can manage and you help by interviewing me and asking me to tell you the story.
16: We asked Sagoff to play a song for us before we left. He chose Wayne Shorter's song, Footprints, Stanley Sagoff will perform two shows with his quintet at the regatta bar this Saturday. He'll be surrounded by friends and family who are flying in to celebrate Sagoff, his music, and his life.
0: Thanks for spending part of your evening with us here at 90.9 WBUR. Coming up next, car insurance premiums are up 20% from a year ago. Marketplace will look at why insurance prices have skyrocketed. In sports, the Bruins face the New Jersey Devils on the road tonight. The puck drops in an hour. Pretty clear skies tonight for viewing the Geminid meteor shower. It'll be chilly in the mid-20s. The best viewing is from 7 p.m. to 2 a.m.
21: Happy stargazing. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Jose Mateo Ballet Theater. Rediscover the magic of the Nutcracker at the Strand in Dorchester. Now through the 24th. Tickets from $25.